The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Remember that you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and become a producer of Forgotten TV. Patreon supporters gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the information presented in the show. More on this during the end credits. Links for all the ways to support Forgotten TV are easily seen right here on your device, in the show notes, or at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Will Welton and Doc Pinko. Thanks to all for your support. A Forgotten TV. Whiz Kids, Part 2, Behind the Scenes. This is Part 2 of Forgotten TV's consideration of the 1983 CBS TV series Whiz Kids. Part 1 related the previously untold origins of the show, how concepts by both writer-producers Bob Shane and Phil DeGuerre were combined into the show we eventually saw aired, and featured a breakdown of each episode, including some behind-the-scenes details relevant to each one. So if you haven't yet, go back and listen to Part 1. On this installment, we'll dig deep behind the scenes of the overall series, look into criticisms of the show, technical details, locations, actors, as well as hear from Bob Shane himself in the interview segment. Recall where we were technologically in 1983. The year of Microsoft Word 1.1. Apple's $10,000 Lisa computer with its modern graphical user interface was released and would utterly fail in the marketplace. IBM offers its XT computer with 10 megabyte hard drive, 128K of RAM, monitor and printer, all for $5,000. The new compact disc format was released, 
Nintendo releases the Mario Brothers arcade game, and Atari's Crystal Castles debuts, which I was known to play, gulping down far too much Coca-Cola between levels at yesterday's arcade at the new San Jacinto Mall in town. Of course, no visit would be complete without some Corn Dog 7 and a visit to the Cinema 6, where you could catch Richard Pryor's antics in The Toy, an encore showing of E.T., or see World War III narrowly averted in War Games. Like many, I saw the premiere of WizKids one Wednesday night, October 5, 1983. Even though we were Fall Guy watchers, the family deferred to my viewing choice. Reluctantly, I'm sure. I watched the first eight episodes before our family's TV was sold and we moved into a camper for about five months for our Western U.S. adventure and spent most of 1984 without a TV. It ends up I left the show almost the same time Bob Shane did and didn't see the rest of the episodes until 10 years ago when I found them online. Let's begin by talking about the term WizKids. For nearly 80 years, child prodigies who excel in one field or another, many times to the level of an adult expert, have been referred to as WizKids. WizKids, as a generic phrase, has been used a number of times over the decades. I find references to WizKids referring to the 1942 University of Illinois men's basketball team, the 10 young Army Air Force statistical experts hired by Henry Ford II in 1945. In the 1940s and 50s, a game show called Quiz Kids aired on radio and later television for some 16 years. We're on the air with the School Kids Questionnaire, brought to you by the makers of Alka-Seltzer and one-a-day brand vitamin tablets. And here they are, the Quiz Kids. Among several panelists that became notable in their fields was a 12-year-old, Harvey Bennett. I'm Harvey Bennett Fishman. I'm 12 years old, and I'm in 7A at the Bradwell School in Chicago. Who became a television and film writer and producer of many TV shows of the 70s and the Star Trek films of the 1980s. Anecdotally, the title of this show seems to be incorrectly remembered by some as Whiz Kids and this may have encouraged the general use of this term, such as referring to the roster of the 1950 Philadelphia Phillies. And there are additional times this phrase has been used. The first time I find evidence for its use in referring to computers was in the WizKids comics, published for Radio Shack, that started being distributed in 1980. Initially called the TRS-80 WizKids, the first three books in this series were produced by DC Comics. These are the best remembered because they featured the DC Comics superheroes Superman, Supergirl, and Wonder Woman. The comic books focused on classmates Alec and Shanna and their teacher, Ms. Wilson. Alec and Shanna were the so-called TRS-80 computer whiz kids. Ms. Wilson, her students, and the many visitors to the classroom all made frequent use of many different Radio Shack products, which ended up helping the superheroes save the day. The final eight comic books were produced by Archie Comic Publications. These books kept the characters of Alec, Shanna, and Ms. Wilson, but eliminated the Metropolis setting and the superheroes, and continued being published until 1992. 
any teacher writing on school letterhead could request a free packet of 50 comic books from Radio Shack. And I recall getting Mrs. Huff to request some. Interesting note, Bob Shane was not aware of this comic series and was not a user of computers at the time, still hammering out scripts the old-fashioned way on a manual typewriter. As we'll examine in detail, Phil was the complete opposite. He subscribed to half a dozen computer magazines and undoubtedly knew his way around a radio shack and very possibly was aware of the comic series prior to coming up with the show title in that original pitch meeting. Let's take a look at the background of the cast prior to the show. Matthew Laberto was the most well-known and experienced actor among the young cast. He had been acting on film and TV since 1974, before he was eight years old, in over 20 different films and TV shows, such as The Bob Newhart Show, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and the TV movie Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo. He was a regular on the Saturday morning children's series The Red Hand Gang, seen on NBC in 1977, about five crime-solving 10-year-olds and their dog Boomer, who later actually got his own show. Then in 1978, he joined the cast of Little House on the Prairie as the Ingalls' adopted son, Albert, until nearly the conclusion of that series in early 1983. Matthew was a video game enthusiast. He regularly competed at Atari video game tournaments. He was good enough that Atari asked him to be a goodwill ambassador for the company and he became a member of their youth advisory board. Although he was a video game champion, ranking 10th nationwide in Centipede, he didn't really know a lot about computers when he got cast as Richie. But as he told Intermagazine, Atari gave him a 1200XL computer in the summer of 1983, the same type he used on screen in Episode 9, on which he learned how to type. Thanks to the 1200, I learned how to type before WizKids began shooting. That made my character at least look like he knew what he was doing. On my lunch hour or during breaks in shooting, I'll sit down at the Apple and learn. Primarily languages like BASIC and LOGO. Matthew turned 17 in the middle of the season. Todd Porter, according to the teen magazines of the time, was an actor model at age 8 appearing in TV commercials and print ads. By age 12, he was in the Saturday morning children's series, Star Stuff, seen in the local Philadelphia market only. In an interesting coincidence, the series ran 18 episodes and was about a young boy that built a homebrew computer, who was able to communicate with a girl named Ingrid from the future. He also voiced Pinocchio in the Rankin-Bass animated special, Pinocchio's Christmas and was in the 1981 movie Earthbound with Burl Ives. He was cast in the role of Richie's friend, the athletic Hamilton Parker, at 14, and turned 15 prior to filming regular series episodes. Jeffrey Jacquet had been seen in the films Return from Witch Mountain and Holy Moses, and had a recurring role on the first season of Mork and Mindy, as Eugene, the neighborhood boy that took music lessons from Mindy's father. He was excited to be cast as Jeremy Saldino in WizKids, as he told Inter Magazine. As soon as I started preparing for the part, 
I just wanted to go into more depth with computers. There's always something new that you can do on a computer. I write all sorts of programs. I never have a chance to be bored anymore. His exuberant personality came through in his performance, as did his Your Mama ad-libs, which made it into episodes. He was the only black actor in any new CBS show that season, which was noted in Ebony magazine. Jeffrey turned 17 during series filming. Andrea Elson was the youngest of the WizKids, being cast as Alice Tyler at age 13 and turning 14 during pilot filming. She had done some TV commercials, and this was her first regular series role. Young Melanie Gaffin played Cheryl, the seven-year-old sister of Richie. She had been seen in the 1982 film The Entity and on a few episodes of the series Taxi. She turned 10 during series filming. Madeline Kane was a relative newcomer to the small screen, having been seen in a handful of TV guest appearances before being cast as Irene Adler, mother to whiz kid Richie. If the character name sounds familiar, it was Bob Shane's nod to Sherlock Holmes. The Irene Adler character only appeared in one original Holmes story, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but has been used in numerous film, radio, and TV adaptations, including the recent Sherlock on the BBC and Elementary on CBS. Max Gale was fresh off his role as Detective Stan Wojciechowicz on seven years of the sitcom Barney Miller. After the critical reception we'll examine in a minute, CBS felt the original reporter character of Gallagher in the pilot, played by Michael Horton, was too young, and they desired an older actor to supervise the Whiz Kids. Gale was Phil DeGuerre's choice to play new character Farley. However, producer and co-creator Bob Shane felt he wasn't right for the role. According to Bob, Gale wanted to depict Farley as an aging hippie type, and inject some political viewpoints into the character, resulting in some behind-the-scenes friction. After Bob Shane left, Gale was given the opportunity to direct episode 13, Made in the USA. A. Martinez was police lieutenant Neil Quinn, married to Farley's sister, and WizKids was only his second regular series role. He had been a series regular on The Cowboys in 1974, as well as over 50 appearances as a guest actor. Linda Scruggs played Ms. Vance, the sometimes seen teacher at Canyon High School. The character was named after Linda's high school guidance counselor. Prior to WizKids, she was known for appearing on series like Starsky and Hutch, Bob Bob Black Sheep, and Simon and Simon. She performed a lot of additional behind-the-scenes tasks on WizKids, as well as Simon & Simon, you aren't going to see listed on IMDb. You see, she was married to executive producer Phil DeGuerre. She did location scouting for the show, worked on wardrobe, set decoration, acted as liaison between cast and crew and the producers, organized holiday parties for the crew, and it was Linda who bought Phil his first Apple computer. Linda looked after the kids like family, even though there were several moms on set and was the confidant of several of the cast and crew. The house that was used for the exterior shots of Richie's house, 
as well as streets used for the bike riding scenes, was in a Calabasas, California neighborhood. It's actually not too hard to track down. The street name is seen in the opening segment. It's also listed as a filming location on IMDb. The house used in one episode as Ham's house was right next door. So I guess you could say Ham was Richie's next-door neighbor. Technical consultant on the show Kurt Borg lived half a mile away in the same Calabasas neighborhood. Michael Hill from the Baltimore Sun correctly noted the Spielbergian appearance of the neighborhood, as well as the kids riding the bicycles used on the show appearing to be right out of E.T. This was indeed intentional, according to Linda Scruggs, intended to evoke a sense of familiarity in the viewer to that warmly received film. The school scenes were shot at the real Canyon High School in Santa Clarita, California. There is no way they would have ridden their bikes there, as it is a 45-minute trip by car up the 405. The high school can be seen in the Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet. While filming, a girl named Beth worked up the courage to knock on Matthew's trailer and invite him to the school's Sadie Hawkins dance, and he accepted. She still has the photos of their date today. The interiors were shot on sound stages at Universal Studios Stage 31. Let's expand on the details regarding WizKids going to series at CBS. Once the two-plus million dollar pilot was shot and delivered to CBS in April 1983, it performed well when it was shown to test audiences. According to Phil DeGuerre, it tested particularly well with young viewers. Our research indicates support from every demographic group except men 30-plus, who are threatened by it. They are precisely the age group most threatened by computers which figure in the show, and threatened by potent teenagers. And men over 30 make up most of the villains on TV. When screened for affiliate stations, advertisers, and critics during the May network upfronts, however, and again at a June press conference for TV critics, the response was not as positive. Even though CBS president Gene Jankowski gave it his thumbs up, announcing to the assembled crowd, I liked it and I hope audiences will too. Comments from advertisers and affiliate station owners voiced concerns over the activities the WizKids engaged in. TV critic Marilyn Preston called the pilot appalling instead of appealing, and went on to list all the naughty things the kids engaged in. The Pittsburgh Press's review proclaimed, CBS's WizKids could get straight A's in crime. Harvey Shepard, Senior Vice President of Programs at CBS, said, A number of people mentioned that this is an area we should be quite sensitive about, and we agreed with them. CBS representatives met with the producers, the first of many meetings, some articles claim, to emphasize that storylines for the series should be changed so that access to computers has to be through legal means. CBS also wanted the newspaper reporter character to play a more supervisory role. They felt that the character of Gallagher was too young and close in age to the kids, which was actually the intention of Bob Shane, that he be a younger adult and a bridge from the kids to the adults of the world. 
However, the decision was made to replace him with the older character of Farley, as we've seen, as well as add an authority figure as a regular character in the form of a police lieutenant related to Farley, Lieutenant Quinn. Initially defending the pilot to the press, even slamming his fist on the table in irritation of the criticism at that Phoenix press conference in June. After meetings with CBS, executive producer Phil DeGare contritely gave this statement. Because we are a show with kids on television, the last thing we want to do is be accused of setting undesirable role models. Regarding how computer hacking would be handled going forward, he added, We want to show the vicarious fun of it, but we will structure it so it is clearly a bad guy's computer system. That's a nice way of having your cake and eating it, too. By doing something slightly mischievous, and at the same time, only bringing it down on bad people. Between that press conference and the October 5th premiere, Daguerre continued to edit and tweak elements of the pilot. For example... One change that was made was when Ritchie accessed the Gazette computer. A line was added, making it clear Gallagher had given him a password to use. One deletion was Ritchie lying to his mom about his whereabouts the prior night. Daguerre went over scripts for series episodes for other opportunities like this. He wanted to give an accurate picture of what you can do with a computer terminal, if you know how and what you should and shouldn't do. The first episode written, A Chip Off the Old Block, guest-starring Robbie Rist, was Phil's Mia Culpa episode, intended to show consequences for illegal activities. This episode was very interesting for another reason. By now, you may have noticed a different narrative presented in these podcasts than what you may have read online regarding the origins of the show. According to numerous interviews Phil DeGare appeared in, He always said he came up with the concept of the show back in 1981. Yet, Bob Shane's account relates the original concept of the show was his Hardy Boys Done Right idea pitched in late 1982 to Universal, with Phil adding the computer aspect as well as the title in the pitch meeting. I believe Phil's creative ideas that got integrated into WizKids did indeed begin back in the summer of 1981. It was then that he wrote an episode called Trap Doors that became the third episode of Simon and Simon. In it, a young hacker played by then 17-year-old Robbie Rist breaks into a bank's computer with his Apple II and steals modest amounts of money. The vice manager of the bank branch then forces the boy to help him steal even more money. These are clearly plot elements that were ported over into Chip Off the Old Block, even getting Robbie to return as guest actor. When producing Trapdoors, Phil had to have realized the series' potential of depicting what teenagers could do with computers. This seed of an idea then sprouted when Bob Shane came along with his modern-day Hardy Boys concept. This 1981 Simon and Simon could thus be seen as sort of a proto-WizKids episode. Also, note that this was 1981, making this quite possibly the first depiction of computer hacking on television. As the scheduled September 28th premiere date neared, Daguerre expressed concern that the show would be competing with late-season baseball 
and pushed for a late October premiere. CBS only gave him one week and moved the date to October 5th. Even with the changes made, the critics still raked the pilot over the coals, some still basing their criticisms on the press pilot screening before changes were made. WizKids, a new CBS program debuting tonight, does not make a whimper on the sex and violence scale, yet it may be more dangerous to children than anything on television this season, proclaimed an indignant Fred Rothenberg in an AP article that ran nationwide the day of premiere. Articles titled, WizKids No Good for Youngsters, and WizKids Not Good Role Models, and Program Rife with Uncomfortable Ideas, peppered newspapers throughout October. The fact that real-life whiz kids wouldn't stay out of the news fueled a lot of this negative publicity, as we shall see, as well as the ongoing popularity of War Games, the fifth highest-grossing movie that year, still playing in theaters, with even Congress taking the movie seriously now that it was back in session. Daguerre was asked about the whiz kids influencing illegal activities often enough that he eventually drafted a position statement for the press. The creators and producers of WizKids are fully aware of the responsibility to present our stories in a manner that fosters, among young people, a clear understanding of their obligations to obey laws. If there is any instance in which any of the young protagonists use computer access in a manner of questionable legality, this fact will be made apparent. It will not appear that the act is condoned, and they will be suitably and quickly reprimanded. Bob Shane, the hands-on day-to-day producer of the first half of the season, recalls no such directives, nor the controversy stirred up by the press. However, he was busy producing the show and not taking press interviews. Plus, as executive producer and face man for the series, Daguerre would have been the one dealing with the press, the network, and the studio. Even Matt Laberto defended the show to the press, saying in a UPI article, There are no written laws about computers, but the press tore us up over our pilot show for doing illegal things. That's not fair. Some of the things kids do with computers may be morally wrong, but not legally. On our show, the kids are like Robin Hood. They use the computer to help the law. The press wasn't all bad, Variety appropriately said, Put simply, WizKids is the Hardy Boys with a computer. It has this group of scrupulously neat, bright youngsters out to combat whoever may be evil, aided considerably by Ralph, their talking robotic computer. And Michael Hill of the Baltimore Sun said, WizKids computes into a fairly good show. And the Youth in Film Awards also recognized the show with a nomination for Best New Television Series, along with Webster, Mr. Smith, Jennifer Slept Here, Boone, and Goodnight Beantown, which took the award. The Youth in Film Awards also recognized all the young actors with nominations, with the exception of Andrea Elson, again inexplicably left out. Another issue this show and others dealt with early in the TV season was the very busy news cycle, competing with the nation's attention at the time. You had Hurricane Alicia in August cause mass evacuations on the Gulf Coast and killing 21 people. 
Many returned to damaged or destroyed homes and had their lives disrupted for months. The Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars program, and Cold War issues were in the news. In late October, the U.S. invaded Grenada. Two weeks later, the U.S. Capitol bombing. And Todd Porter correctly pointed out WizKids was once totally preempted for coverage of President Reagan's press conference regarding crises in Lebanon and Nicaragua. At midseason, the show was on the bubble in TV speak, unsure if CBS was going to cancel it or keep it until the end of the season. In mid-December, WizKids was given the green light for the rest of the season. But as you know, this came with the catch of the show moving to Saturday nights at 8, 7 central. While on Wednesday night, much of the potential audience was probably watching The Fall Guy, on Saturday it was up against established shows T.J. Hooker and the Different Strokes' Silver Spoons Hour. Add the fact that literally half the time CBS preempted it for animated holiday specials, a longer-than-normal Saturday night movie, or experimenting with the Dukes of Hazard in that time slot, it didn't have a chance. The other crisis facing the show at midseason was the departure of producer Bob Shane. Citing the increasing difficulty of getting along with executive producer Phil DeGuerre, Shane left the show and was replaced by James Crocker. There was also a directive from the studio, the network, or possibly both, to make an attempt to widen the appeal of the show to a more adult audience than what was the original concept. Thus, stories became darker and emphasized the Cold War issues of the time. More tinkering with the show concept came with the addition of Carson Marsh and the Athena Society. This mysterious organization appeared to be an NGO that was well-funded, with multiple branches across the country, or perhaps the world. Just what the Athena Society did was unclear, but they had contacts with all the three-letter governmental agencies. How newspaper reporter Farley was aware of such a secretive organization was not revealed. The addition of a third adult guiding the kids meant this yet was another character that had to be consulted each episode, further complicating the show. When a show tinkers with its original core concept, it rarely results in an improvement. In fact, it ironically fell into the same trap as did the Hardy Boys, as those producers repeatedly retooled the show, abandoning the original concept of episodes based on the original books, making the show darker in tone, and by the third season, had them working for the Justice Department. Also, recall Bob Shane's original intended audience for WizKids, as expressed to Universal Television head Robert Harris, was for young viewers on early Sunday evening, opposite CBS's 60 Minutes at 7 p.m. 6 Central. When CBS then picked up the show, this threw a wrench into Bob's original concept, meaning the target audience would have to change now that it would be slotted in regular prime time. Indeed, Bob expressed disappointment with CBS, even upon news they picked up the show for the fall season, as he told Forgotten TV. I remember feeling kind of empty and angry rather than elated. I think because I knew the show couldn't succeed in an 8 o'clock time slot and could have been a long-running hit on a different network Sundays at 7. And because I think Universal had already started their push to make the series more adult-skewing, 
which I was against. The whole journey had started out with me saying to Robert six or so months earlier, let's do the Hardy Boys right, and Phil adding, and give them a computer, and it ended up with the studio and the network making ostensibly the same mistakes they'd made on the Hardy Boys. Not long after the move to Saturday night, likely in February, the decision was made to cancel WizKids, although this was not announced to the public. With CBS still having an outstanding order of three more episodes, these went into production, with the cast and crew knowing these were the final three. Writer-producer Craig Buck was brought on to supervise script development as story consultant for these last three produced episodes, and he shared his thoughts with Forgotten TV on his time on WizKids. The series had already been canceled, but they had an outstanding order for three more episodes. I agreed to come on board as a story consultant to supervise two episodes that had already been assigned and to write and produce the third, Father's Day. I got to produce as sort of a carrot to persuade me to take the job, since the series was already DOA. I remember it well, because it was my first producing credit. After the final three produced episodes aired, on June 2nd, the final episode aired, one that had been produced early in the season, but was the victim of one of the many preemptions the show had over the course of its short life. Let's now take a look at some upbeat behind-the-scenes info on WizKids. The first half of the season made repeated use of mentioning the NASCorp company whenever a corporation was needed in the storyline. What did NASCorp stand for? The answer leads to a funny story from Bob Shane. The company's full name, which was a local joke not ever meant to be put out on the air, was Nasty Corporation. I think that idea came out of the fact that when the Universal TV VP told the CEO of all of Universal Studios about the series, the CEO, Lou Wasserman, replied, it'll have to be anti-establishment to work. I was shocked that the head of the biggest TV studio in the United States would actually say such a thing, because who could be more establishment than him? I agreed with that sentiment. I knew it meant the bad guys had to be corporate, not street thugs, as you wouldn't want to put kids up against people who looked like they would beat them up or kill them. It took me years to realize even very rich and very powerful people come in different political stripes. At the time we made the show, and for many years before, Universal had been owned by MCA, which had previously been one of the top one or two talent agencies, along with William Morris but gave up the agency business when the Justice Department sued them as a monopoly, and the Supreme Court ruled they had to give up either the studio or the agency. Every Universal show ended with a sign that said, Universal Television, an MCA company. So as a joke, I ordered the studio sign department to make up a sign that read, Universal Television, a division of NASCorp, to be placed at the end of the pilot. Phil loved the idea. It was only meant to be shown at the end of the pilot in the screenings for Universal and CBS. We never intended for it to go out on the air that way. But the studio legal department refused to let the sign department make the sign, or us to shoot it, giving the completely bullshit reason that it could undermine Universal's copyright on the show. So we didn't get to have it 
there at the screenings. One highly memorable aspect of the show we can't skip over is the music. The music on the show was arranged by composer Paul Chihara. Chihara was born in 1938 in Seattle and is of Japanese descent. He spent three years of young childhood in a U.S. internment camp in Idaho during World War II, where he was separated from his father, who was sent to an actual prisoner of war camp in Texas. During these years, he learned to sing and performed to his literal captive audience and was influenced by popular Western big band music as well as pre-war Japanese songs. After the war, he had formal music training and at age 13 joined a USO troop and entertained American soldiers bound for the Korean War. After becoming a tenured professor of music at UCLA, as well as the composer-in-residence with the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, director Roger Corman reached out to him to score his film, Death Race 2000. This led to a life of repeated opportunities to score music for TV and film, and since, he has provided music for Phil Daguerre's 1978 Doctor Strange, Manimal, China Beach, films The Morning After, Crossing Delancey, and over 50 additional TV movies and miniseries. The music of WizKids was arrangements of classical music performed using an electronic synthesizer. The main theme is an arrangement of the first movement of the Piano Concerto No. 21 in C major, composed by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart in 1785. Mozart qualifies as one of the original WizKids, writing the first of his mini piano concerti at age 11. Joaquino Rossini's overture from The Barber of Seville is also heard repeatedly throughout the series. To highlight romantic interests of the characters, parts of the second movement of Mozart's Concerto 21 are played and Dante. And that unmistakable classic, Tchaikovsky's love theme from Romeo and Juliet shows up in at least one episode. These passages likely qualify as among the most recognizable pieces of classical music in history. The WizKids opening music theme, based on Concerto No. 21, specifically the Allegro Maestoso, first movement, brings an old-world classic into the computer age, and with its exuberance, highlights the enthusiasm, curiosity, and wit of the main characters. I got in touch with Paul Chihara, and he told Forgotten TV where the idea for using classical music pieces came from. The producer and creator of this show, WizKids, was a serious music lover. Not so much of classical music as of the Grateful Dead and their living musical brethren of the 70s and 80s. But for this main title, Phil Daguerre was very specific. He wanted a passage he had heard in a concert of the Mozart Piano Concerto No. 21 in C major, the so-called Elvira Madigan Concerto, 
which was very popular at this time because of the very popular Swedish movie. He specifically wanted the opening melody of the first movement to accompany the three whiz kids investigating or searching for evidence on tiptoe as they prowled around scenes of crime. The musical image was perfect and left me plenty of inspiration for the other dramatic moments in the series. Even the famous love theme in the second movement found its place in my score. It was a fun show for me to work on, and I had a chance to meet the young cast and old crew in a most friendly and fulfilling way. Elvira Madigan is a 1967 Swedish film based on the tragedy of the 19th century Danish tightrope dancer that went by that stage name. Because the film's soundtrack used Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 21 in C, it is now sometimes referred to as the Elvira Madigan Concerto. As far as other uses of Concerto No. 21, you may recall the second movement playing as Carl Stromberg's underwater lair surfaced from the ocean in The Spy Who Loved Me. The music does seem to be a polarizing subject with some viewers. Some loved it, and others, well, Starlog Magazine said, WizKids does boast the most annoying music heard on any current TV show, a never-ending video game-like score, sure to drive anyone who doesn't live Atari and breathe Coleco straight out of his, her, and television. There's no accounting for taste. WizKids, sponsored by Advanced Formula Crest with Fluoristat. Fighting cavities is the whole idea behind Crest. WizKids will continue. War Games, the motion picture, is now a video game for ColecoVision and the Atom computer. War Games, the motion picture, is now the video game where you must prevent the NORAD computer from starting a thermonuclear war. War Games, the motion picture, is now the video game where sector by sector you launch killer satellites, fire ABM missiles, blast enemy subs. The time is running out. War Games, the motion picture, is now the video game where only you can prevent the unthinkable. War Games, exclusively for ColecoVision and the Atom computer. Spell meringue. What's the symbol for oxygen? Next. Next. Nothing turns a child Next. off to learning faster Next. than being forced into it. Next. Next. Talking WizKid turns children on to learning. It talks them through spelling, music, vocabulary, math, and lets kids know when they've learned their lessons well. Yes, you are right. Talking WizKid, the computer-like learning machine that makes learning fun. Talking WizKid from Video Technology. WizKids' real computer wizardry was handled behind the scenes by three technical advisors. David Gunn, 28 at the time, a microcomputer consultant, computer graphics mastermind Kurt Borg, who was 26, a specialist in mini and mainframe computers, and Jim Michaels, age 22, who had a data processing background. These are the men that made Ralph work on a weekly basis. As Richie typed away on his keyboard, one of the three would be stationed at an Apple IIe or a Heathkit Zenith Z100 behind the wall of the upstairs bedroom set. The robot arm seen feeding Richie in the pilot was a Mini Mover 5 from Microbot Incorporated. Unlike the movie War Games, which used actor John Wood's voice for the Whopper, 
Ralph's speaking voice was real, synthesized computer speech, as David Gunn told Inter Magazine in 1984. A Votrax speech system gives Ralph his distinctive computerized voice. Up till now, most shows have settled for the voice of an actor they've tried to pass off as a computer. But Ralph really does speak. As far as I can tell, it was likely an off-the-shelf Votrax type and talk using the SC01 speech synthesizer chip. The digitized images of the kids seen in the pilot were also really computer-generated and not a visual effect. The faces of the actors were photographed. Then these images were fed into the handy Apple IIe using an image synthesizer called Photocaster. The Photocaster camera took a still image, stored it on disk, then translated it into a high-contrast, digitized color image. This product was also available on the consumer market at the time. The system sold for $500, video camera an additional $250, and could serve as a primitive webcam, transmitting your image over the phone line to another Photocaster user. David Gunn said there was a real effort not to let WizKids stray into science fiction. There's a tendency in TV to make things far out so that the story won't get bogged down. We added a few more lights to Ralph than you'd find in comparable real-life computer systems, but otherwise, we're pretty careful. David Gunn ended up leaving the show after 13 episodes, and Richard Edelman came on to replace him in the final five as the resident computer expert on the show. Richard, or Rick as he went by, had been training the CBS secretaries to use their new computers. Rick was particularly proud that he convinced one of the producers to purchase a Lisa, which would later become known as the Edsel of the computer industry. For more information on the components that made up Ralph as depicted on the show, I turned to the experts at the Vintage Computer Federation, who sourced props for shows like Halt and Catch Fire and The Americans. The layout of the components in Richie's room evolved over time. In most episodes, two to three silver panels with lights, knobs, and switches, as well as a black panel with red lights, visually depict Ralph. However, these were evidently not computers. They were probably leftover, purpose-built test or lab equipment control panels, acquired and obtained from a props department for just this kind of use. The center black panel with rows of red lights was probably purpose-built for the show. Other devices seen in episodes were an MSI 8080, MSI 8030, Tektronix Model 502 oscilloscope, and various EEPROM programmers, acoustic couplers, modems, and other peripherals. A Commodore keyboard is used in early episodes and the show opening, and this was replaced by a Zytex Corporation terminal keyboard in later episodes. Consultant Jim Michaels went on to be visual effects producer on Otherworld, Streethawk, Airwolf, Knight Rider, Misfits of Science, and Probe, among other series. He expanded into producing on Midnight Caller and Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and currently is co-executive producer of Supernatural on the CW, now in its 15th season. 
While the show frequently made use of real consumer-available devices, such as Farley's Gavilan laptop and Ritchie's TRS-80 Model 100, and a sharp-eyed viewer might recognize the apples in the school computer lab, the absence of Ralph components also prominently displaying brand names seemed conspicuously missing. Well, there is a reason for that. Recognizing advertising potential of being featured on the show, companies like Gavilan, Radio Shack, Apple, Heathkit, Microbot, and others loaned equipment to the show in exchange for the exposure and screen credit at the conclusion of episodes. Executive producer Phil Daguerre was a technology enthusiast, as already mentioned. An early adopter of microcomputers for work usages, such as script writing, he once spent six days of a writer's strike writing a database manager for recipes. His system for tracking daily production via computer software that he established for Simon & Simon was later adopted industry-wide. So, very early on, he contacted IBM, providing them with the pilot script, looking for the same deal he worked out with other technology companies. An IBM rep called Phil and told him they liked the script and would agree to lend out IBM equipment for use on the show and give him permission for the IBM logo to be seen on screen, something they hadn't done since 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey, on two conditions. The first, IBM insisted their equipment never be shown, used to access another computer system without authorization. The second was that their equipment not be shown doing something it was incapable of doing. However, they would only rent equipment to the production, not loan it out like other companies were doing. It turned out IBM, who had just fought the Justice Department in an antitrust lawsuit the prior year, were tightly managing its business practices to not even have the appearance of impropriety. As such, salesmen had very specific rules to follow. Reps had restrictive guidelines on what to say, and IBM emphatically did not loan equipment to anyone but nonprofit organizations. However, Phil told PC Magazine in a 1983 interview, IBM PCs ended up making it into the show anyway. You just didn't recognize them. We did use a lot of IBM stuff in making the show, but we either paid for it or borrowed it from the data processing department. We used this intense IBM terminal with a beautiful display, a big four-color terminal. The EDP guys used a program called Roscoe to generate screens for us. That was the one that we were able to get close enough on, photograph sharply enough to read it on a television set. I have to say I was really impressed with the quality of it in comparison to anything else. We actually ended up disguising the IBM. The story pits the kids against a bad corporation called NASCorp, which stands for Nasty Corporation, and they all had to have black computers. I got this idea because I saw a Tycom, a black computer from England. So, every NASCorp computer terminal is black. But the IBMs weren't black, so we had to go and wrap them all in black contact paper. In so doing, we obliterated the IBM logo, even though, in truth, I don't think we had them doing anything that was not technically feasible for those terminals. So IBM unwittingly became the bad computer. 
Daguerre also had opinions on the ethics of hacking and implications for personal privacy. I think I have a gut feeling for what is right and what is wrong when it comes to the issue of accessing other computer systems without authorization. For instance, I don't presume that there is a great deal of privacy in the world. I don't go around thinking that unauthorized people can't get my driving record or things like that. So the idea of somebody flipping through the DMV files looking for some information that might pertain to me doesn't bother me. I kind of assume it's happening anyway. I tend to sort of cherish paranoia theories. I believe that the existence of computer networks and vast databases suggests that some things that we've taken for granted shouldn't be taken for granted anymore. That we're on a shifting ground in society right now. And that it probably is a good thing that there are hackers who are cracking these systems, even though what any one hacker does may or may not be defensible. I don't think any hacker who gets into a computer system and crashes the files and renders it inoperable is doing something that should be commended. I'm not sure that a hacker who cracks a system because it's a challenge and having done so and having learned more about the architecture of CPUs or operating systems or codes or stuff like that without doing anything harmful is really a person to be scorned or frowned upon. I'm not sure about any of these things. I do know on a case-by-case basis how I feel. But what about personal privacy? Phil had some interesting thoughts on that subject. I don't presume privacy. Maybe I'm weird. First of all, I am convinced that this office is bugged, that the phone line is tapped, and that somebody is watching. I live in a house that's glass. I mean, it's literally 90% glass, and I do assume that there is very possibly somebody watching me walk around naked in my house. And if that's what they want to do, fine. It doesn't bother me. I know that they can't sneak up on me without me seeing them. This is a weird world we live in. If I wanted privacy, I'd go someplace that I knew was really private. As it is, I just assume that somebody's listening. Just what were those hacker groups up to, anyway? The first group that generated media attention, August 1983, was based in Milwaukee and called the 414s, after the local area code. WISM-TV, Milwaukee. This is Channel 12 Action News. The FBI this afternoon confirmed it is investigating members of a Milwaukee area computer club. For having successfully tapped in to the computer of the Nuclear Weapons Research Laboratory at Los Alamos, New Mexico. Using techniques explained in Part 1, such as war dialing and using default passwords found in computer manuals, they dialed into places like the Los Alamos National Laboratory, albeit non-classified, non-critical systems, the Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and the Security Pacific Bank, among some 60 systems altogether. They were eventually identified as seven teenagers aged 15 to 22 using inexpensive home computers that met on local BBSs where they learned how to access random computer systems well before War Games was released. They were described as meeting the FBI profile of computer hackers at the time. Young, male, intelligent, highly motivated, and energetic. Sounds like a description of most teenage boys. What did these criminals do? Essentially, looked around and played games, which were found in most computer systems at the time. Sometimes they coded a back door so they could easily get back in using the password Joshua. Yes, right out of war games. 
often they couldn't resist leaving their tag 414 on the game scores they achieved. On some systems, they used the command set process slash priv equals all to gain root privileges. Hmm. It seems Gus Gorman typing override all security in Superman 3 may not have been that far-fetched. Playing games is how they think they were caught. After accidentally deleting some files that kept track of doctor's billing times, a total loss of about $1,500 during a hacking session on June 3rd, yes, the very day War Games was released, they made the FBI's radar, who later used a honeypot in the form of a Star Trek game planted in the file system. When they went back in to access this file, the 414s think the FBI was able to trace them back to their home phone lines. Timothy Winslow recalls pops and clicks, as well as random disconnects, on his phone line. It turns out his next-door neighbor worked for the phone company and had installed the FBI wiretap on his line. After cooperating with the FBI agents that came knocking on his door one morning that summer, he found he was the third 414 member to be visited. They had already confiscated a computer from another member, but couldn't figure out how to turn it on, even after buying a book on computers. In 1985, 414 members Timothy Winslow, 18, and Gerald Wundra, 21, were finally charged with a crime resulting from computer hacking, even though, as Matt Laberto correctly pointed out in his defense of WizKids, there were not yet specific laws regarding this. While the legal adults in the group faced charges the FBI came up with, such as making harassing telephone calls, 17-year-old Neil Patrick got out in front of the case and started his own media campaign. Appearing on all three TV networks, Donahue, the Sunday Talking Head shows, and that infamous cover of Newsweek. On September 26, 1983, nine days before WizKids premiered, he testified before Congress about computer hacking and the state of computer security and cooperated with the FBI in exchange for immunity from prosecution. This wasn't the only group making the news. Another group called the Inner Circle, made up of 15, mostly teenagers from across the country, had been under surveillance by the FBI since 1982. The group associated on online bulletin boards and members roamed GTE's Telenet as well as the ARPANET, the predecessor to today's Internet. One week following the WizKids premiere, FBI agents in Detroit, Rochester, Oklahoma City, Tucson, and Irvine, California, raided the homes of Inner Circle members, confiscating all computer equipment. In Irvine, at 6.15 a.m., FBI Special Agent James Donkels crawled through the upstairs window of 17-year-old Wayne Correa's bedroom, shouting, FBI, that computer is mine. While computer equipment was confiscated, no arrests were made. Three other Irvine boys were included in the raids. Wayne did an interview in the local Orange County Register, which ended up on the front page. The next day, when the boys returned to school, they found numerous media outlets waiting for them, and they decided to do an ad hoc press conference at the school that day. Looking like deer in the headlights, the boys insisted they really didn't do anything wrong and were just sending messages over a network. 
they had joined the inner circle at the invitation of someone called the Cracker, who had given them passwords to use GTE's Telenet system, a paid service. Photos of the boys' press conference ran in hundreds of newspapers that Friday. How much was War Games an influence on these kids? Wayne Correa tells Forgotten TV. Oh, we were well underway with our fun for a year or more before War Games came out for sure. GTE's Telenet was too much fun for kids with modems and endless disposable hours to explore, especially in the summer of 83. Those were some special times. War Games' popularity told us that we were definitely onto something, and we geeks, misfits, nerds, gays, etc. were about to flip the script and become the cool kids in pop culture. The last 30 years reinforces we were definitely the next generation's, Generation X, early adopters of this new culture. After the press conference, Wayne was contacted by the WizKids production to invite him to be a technical consultant on the show. But due to the trouble they were in with the feds, his mom wasn't having it. Just who was the cracker that invited the boys to join the inner circle? The cracker was 18-year-old Bill Landreth from San Diego, a legal adult. In May 1984, Bill Landreth became the first person I can find record of indicted with a crime related to computer hacking. With no specific laws to charge him with, he was indicted with three counts of wire fraud. In a plea agreement, he pled guilty to one, and the other two were dropped. When he was evaluated by court order, he was found to have a 163 IQ and was sentenced to three years probation and ordered to attend college or perform 200 hours of community service, and reimbursed GTE for a grand total of $87 in unpaid telephone charges. However, the suspected leader and mastermind of the inner circle was known as the Wizard of Arpanet, 14-year-old Eric from Detroit. Some of the Wizard's alleged activities would range from pranks like getting a bunch of senior military personnel on a conference call for no reason and listening to the inevitable hilarity that ensued, to deleting emails from Coca-Cola executives and changing the names on email accounts. Being 14 years old, he was never charged with anything, but had his bedroom turned upside down and all his computer equipment confiscated. I don't want to make light of the activities of the real-life whiz kids. The sharper ones were at risk of being targeted for blackmail or recruitment by foreign state agencies due to their abilities, not unlike Episode 10, The Network. And though many of the activities they engaged in may have been benign, the intent of imitators may not have been. In 1986, Congress passed the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which made it a crime to break into computer systems. So where did these real-life whiz kids end up? Timothy Winslow of the 414s, whose picture ended up being used in hacker memes, became a network engineer after his probation ended. He's still married to his high school sweetheart and participated in a documentary short film on the 414s in 2015. Neil Patrick, who was 17 and became the de facto face man for the 414s with his media blitz, also appeared in that documentary short. As an adult, he lost interest in computers, but found his niche in the world of marketing, 
He is now a marketing executive for La Acetane, an exclusive French cosmetics brand. Eric, the 14-year-old alleged leader of the inner circle, known as the Wizard of the Arpanet, who went uncharged due to his young age, went back to school and enjoyed his brief celebrity. He studied computer science in college and, as an adult, became an upstanding family man and went legit in the computer field. He is now a published IT author and executive speaking to audiences at annual industry conferences. And Bill Landreth, the cracker, the first person successfully charged with crimes related to computer hacking, soon wrote a book on the experience called Out of the Inner Circle in 1985. He initially made a fairly decent income from this, but his life has been unstable ever since. One day, after writing an eight-page rambling essay about mankind that included talk of suicide, he got up from his computer and started walking the earth with nothing but his house key, a passport, and the clothes on his back during his probation. He was arrested in Oregon and served three months jail time. He was last seen in San Diego in 2016, where writer Matt Novak interviewed him about his life. Struggling with mental illness, the man with the 163 IQ, who could easily pull down a six-figure income in any of several computer-related fields, or made off with a fortune illegally for that matter, has lived in the area homeless for over 30 years. For even more on the 414s, the Inner Circle, and Neil Patrick, listen to the upcoming supplemental podcast on Patreon that will accompany this episode. From Radio Shack, the TRS-80 Model 3. And at $200 off, it's a great value. Select from Radio Shack's huge program library to aid your children's education, plan your personal and household budgets, or to entertain with fast-action games. You can even learn to write programs. The TRS-80 Model 3, on sale for $7.99, only at Radio Shack and Radio Shack Computer Centers. The computer experts. Star Trek, the game. A game so challenging, you need this combat control panel to play it. Take command of the Starship Enterprise as you battle your way through unknown sectors. Blast Klingons. Raise your shields. Watch for space mines. Is this the most challenging game in the galaxy? It's inhuman. Star Trek from Sega. Now it's time to hear from the man who made most of this podcast possible and facilitated the first WizKids actor interview, which cascaded into several. Bob Shane, the co-creator and original producer of the show. Well, a special treat today on this episode of Forgotten TV. He was a writer on shows like Eight is Enough, Knight Rider, and Simon and Simon, and a producer of 80 shows, Cover Up, and of course, WizKids. I'd like to welcome to Forgotten TV, Mr. Bob Shane. Thank you. Thank you for being with us here on Forgotten TV. And of course, we're we're talking primarily about 1983's WizKids. But before WizKids, if you can just let us know a little bit about yourself and what you did before then. Okay. Well, um, I started uh, in television in the 1970s uh, writing sitcoms. 
And I had a partner then, Eric Cohn, who's a very funny guy, who had just graduated USC. I was a few years older than him. And um, we landed actually four pilots at CBS. We sold four pilots at CBS before we had written more than one or two episodes and um, and produced the the fourth pilot the first that was the first one that was shot and um, so we went into the business with writer producer creator credits which is what you could sometimes try 20 years in the business to try to achieve and uh, and then I sort of managed to work my way down from there uh, on subsequent shows I worked on uh, uh, there were various reasons I couldn't get a producer credit, including on Simon and Simon. That was that was um, probably the, the the most important series I worked on for my career, and um, we had a big uh, uh, to do over um, my demand for producer credit when it was going to start, and the studio's refusal to give it to me because they had assigned two other people as producers on it under Phil Deguerre, who was the executive producer and ran it, and. Um, I refused the story editor credit that they wanted to give me. So I said, just don't give me any credit and just let me write as many as I can 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 grind out. And they said, fine. And um, I actually wrote or did major rewrites on something like eight of the first 13 or something like that. So, uh, you know, my background started in sitcoms. And then I, when Eric and I broke up shortly after, I switched to doing our shows that I considered mystery comedies, whether they considered them to be that or not, the people who made them, that, that's what I've always thought it was I was writing. And I always wanted to write Rockford Files, but I never got a, a chance there. It, it was in its last year or two when I when I started doing that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I'm an enormous fan of Roy Huggins, who created it, and he's one of my idols. Uh, and I met him a couple of times at a couple of meetings with him, but I never got to work with him or on or on the show on Rockford. Oh, but you did get to work on shows like Heart to Heart and Foul Play, I guess, is what we're talking about when uh, Circa. Well, yeah, I actually developed the first 10 scripts for Heart to Heart. That was one of the many uh, heartbreaking stories of my career. Um, Tom uh, Mankiewicz rewrote and directed the pilot. He was editing the pilot when I got hired as story editor. And uh, the two of us supervised the first 10 scripts. I wrote two of them. Uh, Then uh, he he wasn't going to stay with the show. And uh, somebody had to have, uh, somebody had to actually be showrunner because this was an Aaron Spelling production. And Aaron and his partners had so many shows on the air that they uh, they needed somebody as the actual showrunner on each one, even though that term wasn't used at the time. And I recommended somebody just because I liked the show he had worked on. David Levinson was his name. And I uh, got him hired for the job, and on his first day on the job, he fired me. So, <laughs> oh, no. And uh, so my um, story editor credit never appeared on the air on uh, Heart to Heart, although I had supervised the, the first 10 scripts. Um, but it did a lot for me, and it sort of propelled my career after that. And you worked on Eight is Enough. Right. No, I was, oh, I was story editor on Eight is Enough, but I quit it after. Well, there, there, was a, there was a writer's strike. No, there was an actor's strike uh, while I was working on Eight is Enough, and they kept six or seven writers on the payroll for 
two or three months during the actors' strike, and we had nothing to do. And it wasn't well enough organized to have us actually writing, which would have been wonderful. It was costing the company a fortune. Then the strike was over. We went back in business, and I had written a couple of scripts. And um, I got an offer. I needed to write a pilot that I had been trying to sell. Um, I got a phone call from Aaron Spelling two years after I had pitched him this idea for a pilot, a return of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, he had he had gotten ABC after two years. He'd worn them down enough that they agreed to let us write the pilot. And uh, and I quit eight is enough in order to focus on that because they needed it. You know, after waiting two years to order it, they, of course, needed it in three or four weeks. So that's how I that's how both of those things happened. And then ABC hated hated the script of uh, The Return of Sherlock Holmes and wouldn't even give me notes for a second draft. And I spent the next seven years trying to sell that script. I mean, I'd gotten paid by ABC, but also under the Writers Guild rules, if you create a series and write the pilot, the rights to it revert back to you in three years. So that happened with The Return of Sherlock Holmes. And seven years later, I sold it to CBS the pilot that ABC hated so much they wouldn't give me notes for the second draft. They said the first draft made no sense. I managed to sell it to CBS, and I produced it rather than Aaron Spelling produced it. I was a showrunner, and uh, it came in first in its time slot. It actually had the be- the highest rating that anything on CBS had had in that time slot for a year, and, and they've virtually never duplicated it since then, uh, and, and really good uh, reviews, and one was nominated by both the Writers Guild and the Mystery Writers of America as Best TV Movie or Miniseries of the Year. So that was sort of my revenge against ABC. In fact, ABC not only refused to give me notes on the pilot, they never would hire me again after that. And I never worked on ABC again. Also, you worked on, uh, you were involved in the story on an episode of Tales of the Gold Monkey, which I've already considered and talked to Tom Green uh, a writer producer on that show, and one of the one of the favorites, the episode "Last Chance Louie. Yeah, I actually was very excited about. There were two shows that started that season mm-hmm. uh, that were sort of TV ripoffs of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <clears throat> and one was the uh, Gold Monkey, and the other one was uh, you tell me the title. The other one, Bring Them Back Alive. Bring them back alive. That's right. I couldn't think of that. And I would have loved to write for both of them. In fact, uh, um, a good friend of mine uh, uh, did the final draft of the pilot of Bring Them Back Alive that got it ordered, uh, Tom Sawyer, who I know you want to talk about later. And I, and then he got fired off of it. And uh, I would love to have worked on either of those. I guess at that moment I was available. I wasn't uh, exclusive to Universal. So I pitched ideas to both of them. And in both cases, I got uh, an order for a story, and then I got cut off, and somebody else wrote the teleplay. So from their point of view, I didn't do a good job, apparently. From my point of view, they were just schmucks. Uh, Tom Green and his partner, on a Friday, I had turned in the story, and they told me, um, we'll give you an uh, go-ahead or not to to write the teleplay uh, on Monday. And I called him up Monday. I don't know if it was Tom or the other guy. I called him up Monday and said, you know, what about, can I start writing the script now? And they said, oh, don't bother. We wrote it over the weekend. (laughs) And so uh, 
<coughs> I'm glad, I'm, you know, glad that uh, viewers liked it. Well, those were some great shows. Um, let's kind of ease into getting to talk about WizKids. Now, uh, how did you get to start working with Mr. Uh, Phil DeGuerre? I was under contract at Universal off and on for about eight years. And I, the, my kind of calling card script was a pilot, a movie pilot. Again, I tended to write two-hour pilots, so they tended to be both considered TV movies and what was called backdoor pilots because they usually went through the movie department instead of the, the dramatic development department. And um, I wrote a spec movie or, and or pilot originally called uh, uh, Heart, Heart, and Heart. And uh, later, uh, when that suddenly became lifted <laughs> uh, and much improved by uh, Robert Wagner when he uh, changed the title of his his upcoming show to Heart to Heart, um, I changed the title of that script to Wilder and Wilder. And it was my calling card for about 10 years. It never got shot, but it got me lots and lots of work. One of the people I gave it to was Phil DeGuerre. And uh, it was about a divorced husband and wife who uh, jointly owned and ran a two-person private detective agency in Beverly Hills. And we know that they should get back together as a couple, but they don't necessarily know that. And uh, it, it was kind of revolutionary in its day, both because a divorced couple was were the stars and because they had a gay male secretary, which was way out there at the time and like nothing that that had ever been done on television and um so phil read it and uh and he later told me that um cbs uh, he he was very close to the uh head of programming at cbs at that time kim lamasters and kim uh suggested to Phil that he write a sort of a modern Sundance, uh, um, sort of a modern Butch and Sundance. And Phil took my script uh, that he had just read and Butch and Sundance as his two, the two inspirations he was drawing on. Uh, and he came out with a pilot called Simon and Simon. And uh, he told me, you know, if this pilot sells, I want you to call me the next day because, uh, I want you to work on it. And, uh, uh, I did, and uh, there was another strike involved. We had to sit through a writer's strike again. Um, but uh, the minute the strike was over, he put me into uh, put me into script on a story I had actually sold twice to Magnum, and got cut off twice at Magnum. And I pitched the same story to Phil, and and uh, he put me into script. And it it, uh, it was the other time that I. Uh, was nominated uh, this time for Best TV Episode of the Year by uh, the Mystery Writers of America, and that was my first uh, my first Simon and Simon, and that led to you know being there, being part of that crew. Eventually, yeah. a year and a half or so later, to uh, creating WizKids. Yeah, Simon and Simon had a rough season, the first season, and then uh, after they they moved it to Thursday nights and gave it a second chance, jazzed up the theme song, uh, it became a hit for CBS. Yeah, we had shot 13 shows, and due to a writer's strike, the whole season was delayed, <clears throat> and nobody was watching it. And um, CBS was thinking of moving it at some other time slot, 
And Magnum all had become the biggest hit in the world. Like the, it had only started a year before, and it was on Thursdays at uh, at nine at that point. And um, uh, also, there had been a kind of a controversy uh, uh, in the industry that ABC had hired a psychic to tell them how to schedule their their fall schedule. Uh, so that was kind of embarrassing to ABC that word got out about that. Well, it so happened that I had a, a friend, a former girlfriend, who was the secretary to the ABC psychic, so-called ABC psychic. And I um, asked Phil if, if he would ask the then head of programming of CBS uh, if it, he, he'd like the ABC psychic to predict what times thought they should move Simon and Simon to. And this, the guy at CBS said, well, sure, don't tell anyone, but sure. And uh, I, I told my ex-girlfriend to please ask her boss and to plant the idea in her boss's head of moving, moving Magnum to 8 o'clock and following it with Simon and Simon, which was the most obvious thing to do. I'm sure they would have thought of it without any help from a psychic. Sure. Um, she came back with that suggestion. I gave it to Phil. Phil gave it to CBS. And they did it. And thank goodness it worked because the people who like Magnum stay tuned for Simon and Simon. And it went from nobody watching to being a top 10 show in no time. So that's that, that's that story. And then in the fall, I had also proposed and eventually wrote a two hour, two part story that started out on Magnum and, uh, and, and then went over to Simon and Simon when it was following Magnum. And, uh, and that really hooked people and uh, they started watching Simon Simon as much or even more than Magnum. Many weeks we had slightly higher ratings than Magnum. Ironically though, the show against us became one of the greatest all-time television series and that was Cheers. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we were doing tremendous ratings in the heartland, Cheers was attracting the, uh, the elites on the coasts and, uh, was a brilliant show and eventually both our show and cheers were in the top 10 every week oh thursday night was a fantastic night for tv in that era yeah this was an early example of uh crossovers now that i mean networks had done that to an extent but mostly with shows that spun off of each other the yeah. uh, the happy days spinoffs did a lot of those crossovers but uh and of course, you can count something like uh, the Charlie's Angels were on the love boat type of thing. Uh, but as far as like a dramatic or an action adventure one hour series, um, when Simon and Simon crossed over with Magnum P.I., um, that's a fairly early example of that happening. Yeah, I wasn't aware that that had ever happened when I did it, as far as I remember. Um, but you probably had. Um, but it was a little different because the, the people who ran the two shows, Phil Daguerre, who ran Simon and Simon, and Don Belisario, who ran Magnum, weren't exactly best buddies. Uh, they, were, they were competitors, and they were sort of uh, frenemies. Um, and, and it wasn't easy to, to get the two of them to work together. Uh, and frankly, they rewrote each other's versions of the scripts of the crossover, you know, <clears throat> Phil didn't like my version and Don didn't like his version, but some, and, and what ended up being shot, I think wasn't nearly as good as the early drafts had been, but, and yet it still worked and it, it saved Simon and Simon despite all the problems. Totally. Yeah. I mean, Simon and Simon after that was getting a 30 share. 
uh, in, in the second yeah. season. So, um, so it was somewhere around 1981 the, when Simon and Simon uh, first, first went to air late, late that year, that Phil had another idea for another TV show. Nope. No, no, he didn't. Well, well tell didn't. tell us what <laughs> tell us the story of how WizKids came to be. Okay, um, I was still fighting for this producer role, and Simon and Simon, and one of the producers was was moved off of it. And she she really wasn't right for it, and she did very well on other shows at Universal, and uh, so there was a, theoretically, at least in my mind, there was a job opening, and I went back to Phil and I said, okay, now it's time to make me. Uh, the missing producer uh, on the series. And <laughs> Phil went to the other producer, who's producer under him as executive producer, who is Richard Chapman, and said, okay, I'm going to bring Bob in as producer now, along with you. And according to Phil, because I only know what Phil told me, and I, you know, Richard may say that this is bullshit, but according to Phil, Richard's response was, you bring him on as producer and I quit. So, once again, I was stymied at getting my second producer credit, the first one having been the first thing I ever shot years ago. Um, and I, at some point after that, I thought, all right, I'll just, I'll just invent another show. And, and that became WizKids. And, and the reason I created that particular show was this. It was a very important commercial reason. 60 Minutes was usually the number one show of the week in the ratings. It was always in the top ten. And this was back in, like, the early 80s. It had already been on the air 10 or 20 years at this point. And um, opposite 60 Minutes, there was a show produced by Universal on NBC called Voyagers. And there was a show produced by Universal on ABC, also against 60 Minutes, I forget what it was. And they were both doing very badly in the ratings. And they were both expensive shows. And we knew that they were going to both be canceled and that some other new show would go into that time slot, one on NBC and another one on ABC the following fall. And there was a good chance that one or both of those would be produced by Universal because Universal had a sweetheart deal with NBC. They ended up buying each other. Um, and uh, and they had a good relationship with ABC, and they produced uh, more at that point more uh, prime time scripted series uh, than any other studio. And a few years earlier, there had been a series on ABC in that time slot called The Hardy Boys, and alternating with the series called Nancy Drew. Um, and they got canceled because ABC was not happy with their ratings, but. In the three or so years after that happened, none of the shows that replaced Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew had ratings as high as Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew had had. So at this point, ABC was regretting ever having canceled those shows. And I always loved those books all my life. Um, Nancy Drew more than Hardy Boys. And in fact, I I wrote one of the last Hardy Boys, although it got canceled and didn't get shot. Um, so I went to the president of Universal TV, who happened to be a, a, a friend of mine, Robert Harris. We had both come over there from uh, writing and producing the the local a, a Los Angeles version of, of the AM show, which preceded what then became Good Morning America. 
Um, I brought Phil with me because Phil was the big uh, showrunner, and um, and I was pretty close to him. And we said to Robert, uh, "Let's do the Hardy Boys right." Not meaning literally the Hardy Boys. Do something like the Hardy Boys, but do it right. Because I thought Glenn Larson had done it all wrong. I thought most of what Glenn Larson did had all had been done wrong. <clears throat> and um, Phil said, "Oh yeah, and we'll give them a computer." <laughs> and Robert <laughs> said, "Fine, go write a pilot." <laughs> and that was the beginning of WizKids. And the studio actually paid for the pilot script, which normally studios don't do. Normally, you need a network for that. But the studio was so confident that they could sell it and that they, they could put it into ABC or NBC Sunday at 7 that they said, go ahead and write the script without worrying about getting a network to pay for the script. Then, once the script was written, the bad news was somebody universal told somebody at CBS that this script existed and CBS asked to read it and uh, Kerry McCluggage who was the second in command at Universal under Robert Harris told me and Phil that he was going to give the script to CBS and I pleaded with him not to give it to CBS because there was no place on the schedule where it made sense to put in a show starring 13, 14 year olds it made sense opposite 60 Minutes because all of the intelligent adults in America and a, a few intelligent teenagers and a couple of intelligent children were watching 60 Minutes and everybody else in America needed something to watch. And certainly all the rest of the kids and teens in America were, the, uh, were not 60 Minutes viewers and would gravitate to WizKids. But there was no slot on another network opposite 60 Minutes because CBS had 60 Minutes in that slot. And I knew the minute CBS got interested that my vision of what this show should be was dead. And uh, frankly, I was very unhappy with almost everything that happened after that point. That was a problematic time slot for a lot of shows that went up against 60 Minutes. I mean, yeah. you, you mentioned Voyager. Well, finally they gave up. Finally, in, for right. 20, 30 years, there's only been news magazines that cost, you know, one twentieth to produce what a, what a scripted show costs. Uh, they, they had done uh, the Disney, Wonderful World of Disney was in that time slot. Um, right. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Um, and that time slot was problematic for another reason. Because often network football games would run late and it would cut right. into the airtime of whatever was uh, was airing at 7 p.m. So uh, as a, a young viewer, that became frustrating for me. Uh, we know we uh, a lot of times they they only they joined the show in progress. So you ended up missing yeah. the first 20, 25, half an hour of Voyagers or whatever the show was that uh, you were tuning in for. Right, right. But, I mean, while that's true, um, it wasn't as important as the, as the demographics of, of that hour of television, which was perfect for WizKids. Well, it makes total sense. Yeah, Galactica 1980 was also in that time slot. So um, there was a lot of shows, and I, I watched shows in that time slot. I, I well remember uh, not being one of the 60 Minutes viewers. So <laughs> right. I would have been right I in mean, the, the target yeah, audience. You were a kid, you know, <laughs> you were a kid, and most kids were not interested in that at all. 
Okay, so the pilot then gets given to CBS, the, the, the script. Right. And Against my fervent, fervent pleas. Right. And uh, they express interest in the show? Yes. They, they, a few weeks later, they said, we want to make this. Um, but shooting the pilot was, uh, was a big uh, milestone in my life. But even, even before shooting it, casting it was uh, quite uh, an experience because I was insisting that we use real teenagers. And in retrospect, it may, that may have been a mistake. Because you have lots of extra problems when you cast children under 16 mm -hmm. who are still in school. Um, <clears throat> we were lucky that Matt Laberto uh, had graduated high school or had a GED and was 16 or more so that he wasn't covered by these uh, special work rules for children and he could work longer hours. Uh, but the other three lead kids were all under 16 and still in school. And we had to abide by these very strict California uh, work, work rules for children. And I think they can only work four hours a day, I believe. And they have to be in school so many hours a day. And that greatly uh, delayed the shooting of the pilot, the, the, the number of days it took to shoot the pilot. You said it was a $2 million production. Well, it may have been a $2 million production when we started shooting it, but it was probably a $4 million production by the time we finished. It was at least a week over schedule. Well, we had talked about, uh, so you talked about the casting. What other uh, actors may have been considered for some of those roles? There were two people considered for Richie, and I don't remember the other actor's name. He was younger and uh, nerdier, um, and he would have been good. And it was just a, really a flip of the coin. And we went with Matt, possibly because he had the, the GED, and he was, he was not considered a minor for working purposes. Uh, and he was great. He was very solid. Um, the other three were people with very little background as actors, but they were just all kind of delightful kids who could, who could read the lines believably. But there was one actor that I desperately wanted to audition because I had met him previously when I worked on Eight is Enough. While I was in a story editor on Eight is Enough, they sent me to the airport to pick up a kid they had hired, a teenager they had hired, to play a new continuing role in the show to toughen up the show because it was it had a very kind of upper middle class white collar feeling to the family and they wanted to bring on a teenager who is more blue collar and they hired this actor from New York and he flew out and I was delegated I don't know why to pick him up from the airport and I did and he seemed like a tough kid in the car. He was very nice, but he just had this aura about him of blue collarness that they wanted on Eight is Enough. And I was very, very impressed with him uh, on the, the trip from the airport to the studio. And um, his name stuck in my head. And so when we were casting Whiz Kids, I looked him up in, there's a, there used to be a big book of all the actors who, uh, who are in SAG. And I looked him up in the children's part of the book, and there was a picture of him. He's a very handsome kid, but for some reason that I didn't understand, he had chosen, or his parents or his agent had chosen a picture to be put in this book in which he had long hair down to his shoulders. And this was you know, like 
10, 15 years after the hippie era. I don't know why he made that choice. Um, but I showed the picture to Phil DeGuerre, who was my boss, and uh, said, this kid should play ham, and I'd like to get him in here for an audition. And he looked at the kid with all the hair down to his shoulders, and he said, not unless ham is a girl. And I said, no, no, really, we've got to bring him in. And Phil absolutely would not see this kid. And so we never had a shot at hiring him to be ham, which he would have been, which is, you know, the tall secondary lead guy. And um, a year or two later, he got hired to be the karate kid. And his name was Ralph Macchio. And he became a sensation, like the biggest young male actor in the country for years after that. And could very well have made the difference in, uh, you know, making Kids a hit show. Sure. It stayed on the air a few years. And if so, he probably wouldn't have had a chance to do The Karate Kid. That's right, because they were filming The Karate Kid during the fall season of Kids. Right. And I oh, know, it was that close. I didn't realize yeah, it was that close. I know it overlapped with uh, at least uh, part of the season filming. Um, uh-huh. But he had already filmed The Outsiders, but it had not been released, so you wouldn't have seen it. Right. So he was about right, to hit huh? it in the big screen. Yeah, um, right. And, uh, right we're, exactly. you know, so things might have turned out a little bit different if uh, he had been unavailable for the Karate Kid. Yeah, right. For them and for us. Yeah. So what about any of the other actors? Did anyone else stand out to uh, to you as... Well, um, I liked them all. I mean, they were... I thought... Uh, and I have their names here because I'm terrible at names. I thought Todd, Todd Porter was good as him and uh, Jeffrey Jacquet or Jacquet as Jeremy, and I adored Andrea Elson, uh, and she was just just charming and delightful in the in the auditions, and uh, I thought just perfect for the role as Alice. Now, in the pilot, and, we have a character named Gallagher, and right. uh, uh, he turned out to we we could uh, talk about him for a minute. I Michael Horton played Gallagher, uh, and I I thought Michael Horton was just perfect. He played a young reporter on a local newspaper and he was sort of a tremendous a transitional character in between the kids and the grown-ups in the show because he was young and and uh, adorable like the kids but he was in his 20s and um he tended to be more sympathetic to the kids point of view than other older grown-ups were that was the point of the character and i thought michael did a wonderful job playing it Unfortunately for him, and as far as I'm concerned for me, um, the then head of programming of CBS, whose name escapes me, um, decided that Michael Horton looked too much like the teenagers, and they should replace him with somebody who looked like an actual grown-up adult. And uh, I think that this is the kind of thing that happens to a lot of shows that you get a pilot order and then somebody with some authority at the, at the network wants to uh, assert their authority <clears throat> and gives you an order that is really bad. <laughs> and this is exactly that, that situation as far as I'm concerned. And Phil should have said no. He should have argued. But um, he wanted to stay in the good graces of this guy. I wish I could remember his name. Um, and so he agreed to replace that character. And 
Might that have when, been uh, Harvey Shepard? Harvey Shepard, that's who it was. Okay. Uh, yeah, Harvey did a couple of really bad things to me in my life. Not intentionally. I mean, he never heard of me, probably. But he he made a couple of really bad choices that 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 were bad for me. The other one was was not going to series with the return of Sherlock Holmes, or even allowing a uh, a second movie to be made. But uh, so in this case, Phil agreed to replace uh, Michael Horton, and then he was deluged with uh, calls from agents pitching actors and he fell in love with the idea of max gale because max had just come off of barney miller and barney miller was uh not all that popular but a very uh chic show that again the the elites on the coasts loved barney miller i loved barney miller although it was not an enormous hit uh in the rest of the country uh and so max gale was a little bit of a name uh, at least in Phil's mind, and uh, that was a good reason to hire him from as far as Phil was concerned. Well, it turned out to be a real pain in the ass from my point of view, because Max, who had played a, a sweet, not-too-bright character on Barney Miller, was determined to play himself on WizKids, and he had long hair, sometimes in a ponytail. He had very... Uh, uh, new left kind of hippie kind of uh, ideas, and he wanted to inculcate those those traits into his character uh, on WizKids, and I didn't feel that they belonged anywhere near WizKids, so I was never happy with that, and that was a running argument from, from week to week. You know, he wouldn't cut his hair, and he he wanted to save the planet when it had nothing to do with what we were doing. You know, I'm all for saving the planet, but not necessarily during my mystery comedy. Uh, so, and I've even, uh, Max and I have talked about this since then. I, uh, he was possibly surprised. I told him 20 years later that I didn't really ever want him in the show. Um, but I think he understood where I was coming from. And I, you know, I love him. I would, I would certainly cast him in the appropriate role, but, uh, I didn't feel that was the appropriate casting. Well, do you recall any negative, uh, feedback regarding the pilot? This was, this was shown from, from newspaper articles I'm reading. It was, it, they, they all say June, uh, there were, it was shown to the press and there was a press announcement and the CBS president, uh, liked it himself or, or so he said to, to everyone. Um, but it got a lot of negative, uh, um, articles written about it. And yeah, I'm not aware of that and, either. I, I don't know how much I was aware of it at the time. Um, but they were negative. Why? There was pushback on all of the, the activities that the kids engaged in. Um, and the early script. You mean because they did things that were dangerous and/or broke the law? Go figure. Digging up graves. Well, that makes and... sense. That makes <laughs> sense. Uh, I always worry about that. I actually am developing a show, a similar kind of show, right now, uh, and I think about that all the time. But that's where the fun is. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do an adventure for uh, for teenagers, um, you don't. You're not going to give them guns or put them into life and death situations. But you're going to do as close to that as you can. You know, you could say the same thing about uh, probably uh, any great piece of children's literature, let alone television show. I think it got an unfair treatment from because they were overly critical of uh, of all of the aspects presented in the show. I mean, one. Uh, 
one newspaper uh, critic uh, called it appalling instead of appealing. <laughs> and then she went on, went, went to go on to list all the naughty things they did. Well, Ham stole his brother's car and they dug up a grave that was empty and they yeah. snuck into a hospital and just this laundry Please. list of all of these things. Yeah. Well, I knew the grave was empty <laughs> when I when I told them to dig it up. Um, <clears throat> I would never have had them dig up a grave and have a body in it, uh, although someone else might have done that, but I never would have done that. Um, <clears throat> I really like digging up graves, apparently. They uh, they also dig up two graves in The Return of Sherlock Holmes, and, ah. and they dig up a grave in one of the episodes of this no-show that I'm developing. So I well, guess I'm big on that. Well, we know that I there, don't know why. there were a couple of changes then that were made from the, the or maybe it's a result of some of the editing, uh, from the pilot that was shown at the press release uh, uh-huh. to when it went to air. There was a couple of things deleted, and there was at least one line added to where um, Gallagher said, oh, I gave the kids my password to emphasize right. that they had permission to get onto the computer system for the uh, the Gazette. There was a scene where, at least it was written, that uh, where they accessed the school computer without authorization. And that, that just completely, I didn't notice that in the final, in the final yeah. aired pilot. Yeah, well, I would guess that was just a matter of time uh, that we had to take those two or three minutes out of it. Mm-hmm. that I mentioned before. And as to the added line, I noticed that when I ran the pilot uh, the other day, I noticed that that was, uh, it, it, it felt like it was an added line. It was a dub, totally. Um, and um, uh, I don't know why it was put in, but I don't believe it had anything to do with censorship. I could be wrong, but uh, I doubt it. So were you aware of all of the things going on in the news at the time? Right around... Uh, especially right around the, the premiere of the show in late August and September with these these real-life, quote-unquote, whiz kids that uh, were, were hitting the news because they're, they were engaging in activities clearly inspired by war games uh, where they were accessing computer systems and uh, being a run afoul of the FBI. Yeah, sure. There were news stories like that. I don't remember our being you know, worried about them. Uh, or, or or associating very closely with them, but the the term whiz kids became the title of the show, and that was it was Phil's idea in the meeting with Robert Harris. He said, "We'll call it whiz kids," and um, it came out of the media because various media uh, publications were calling um, the people who were inventing the internet and and mm-hmm. developing. Uh, new computer things. They were they were being called whiz kids by the press. It was quite popular in forties and fifties term as well. Yeah, but but probably not applied to the same. No, exactly. Thing because there wasn't that there wasn't any there weren't any computers except for the IBM mainframe, which was maybe not till the fifties. The first usage actually that I find uh, specifically referring to computers is, uh, and I don't know if you, either one of you were, were aware of the Radio Shack comic books, where they called no, the, the. I wasn't. Okay, they they had the. Phil TR- might have been. <laughs> Phil was heavily. Phil was totally smitten by computers. The character Richie almost was Phil Daguerre. It sounded Phil, like that. Phil was totally in love with computers. I think that one of, from my point of view. Uh, probably you don't agree because you, you were a fan of the show, but from my point of view, 
there was much, 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 much too much emphasis on computers. It was almost fetishized. How right. the oh the plugging in and the opening and turning right. on and the logging on and and it was yeah. endlessly shown and I think that's one of the things that whenever whenever entertainment does that it immediately dates the show to the era that it's in um, yeah. and especially something that's already from decades ago so it ends up limits po- possibly future um, interest in that because uh, it, of the issue of it being you know dated. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, from articles that I've read with interviews with Phil, he does seem to come across as somebody that was an enthusiast of uh, yeah, very, for, for very mi- much what so. they were I mean, calling he, micro. He computerized all of Universal Pictures. You know, they uh, in my mind it was Texas Interest Instruments, although I saw that they didn't get a credit in the show. But I think it was Texas Instruments that came in and sent a whole bunch of people down there and installed computers all over the place. There were at least and, a dozen, uh, and uh, we're teaching. Well, by the way, I, you know, I should credited. mention that I had a. They put a computer in my office, and they sent somebody to teach me how to use it, and I could not possibly learn <clears throat> how to use it. And uh, eventually, the guy said to me, "Oh, I need to teach you conceptually." <laughs> I didn't even know what that meant. And but I do, you know. I, now I understand. I could learn if you, if I knew why I was doing something. But I couldn't learn just from rote. In any case, I never used that computer, and I wrote the pilot script of Whiz Kids, which Phil then rewrote, um, on a manual, standard size manual typewriter. It wasn't even an electric typewriter. And it was another ten years until I uh, got a computer and started writing on it. Um, I remember one thing, though. We had always had trouble getting the computers and the TVs to uh, to run at the same speed. I don't I don't really have the vocabulary for this, but uh, film. Right. No, not TVs. Yes. Film. Film goes at twenty four mm-hmm. frames a second, and a computer runs at thirty the equivalent of 30 frames a second, right? Right. You, and so, you have uh, that so there was always bit. a problem getting them so you could see what was on the television on the computer. And uh, we were fighting that all the time. Apparently that's been solved in some simple way since then. But it was a problem for us. Definitely the, the technical consultants uh, did their work on that show, um, making all of those things work. I know David Gunn was one of the... was, was Oh, credited. David, yes. Yeah, being That's one the of the guy, main, I remember him. Uh, main uh, technical people, and uh, right. I, I found an article that described how they uh, they used different software to to make the the speech synthesis and uh, mm. made the the commands come up on the screen. So because all of that was you know hard to do when you're trying to film and film the the face facial reactions and the reflection of the monitor and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that, and and you know, well this done. being this is like the the dark ages of computers. This is prehistoric days. So these things were really tricky, and you know, nobody knew how to do these things, ex- you know, except these five people who right. flew in from all over the world to, to help. I mean, very few um, people would and, have even known what a modem was, and and here of, you are seeing right, that every week. Lots of lots of time was spent waiting for the to get the computer to work the way it's supposed to when you shoot it, when you film it. They definitely did the did great work on, on all of the, the equipment or making it at least appear that it was working together. Right, absolutely. 
Did you want to talk about any uh, any specific episodes, uh, in particular ones that you wrote or or had a hand in the writing of them? Yeah, uh, sure. I, let, we... I, I made a list yesterday. Excellent. Here it is. Here it is. So the pilot became programmed for murder. Mm-hmm. And then according to uh, IMDb, the next one that aired was two weeks later. I don't know why there's a week missing. Um, and that was written by Tom Sawyer. And uh, you wondered if that was a real person. I did. Um, I found he out. is a real person, uh, but his name, but he wasn't born Tom Sawyer. Right. He was born Tom Scheuer. And I'm not even sure how to spell it. And uh, he was a cartoonist, uh, I think quite a successful cartoonist living in, in Westport, Connecticut. And he moved to L.A. and became a TV writer. And he, since everybody always kiddingly called him Tom Sawyer, he changed his name to Tom Sawyer when he moved to L.A., uh, just a few years before before WizKids. And uh, we hired him on as story editor, but he just didn't get along with Phil. Phil Phil was starting to get a little crazy around the time that we started WizKids, and, and he and Tom just didn't hit it off, and Tom didn't last too long there. He worked on a lot of things I watched, I can tell you that. Um, I mean, he had an episode of Wonder Woman and BJ and the Bear. and Oh, he's a great writer. Yeah. I, uh I always thought he was a terrific writer. He was for many years on Murder She Wrote mm-hmm. and uh, wrote all the all my favorite Murder She Wrote. He wrote tons of them. Yeah, he has a book he just came out with uh, two years ago where he published his uh, his biography, The Adventures uh, of the Real yeah. Tom Sawyer. Right, he has two or three books out. I didn't know about that one. And we used to be neighbors in Malibu. I, m- I met him through my agent, uh, uh, William Morris who thought we would like each other, and by accident, we ended up being neighbors for a couple of years. Uh, it says number four is Candidate for Murder, mm-hmm. which I think was written by me. And I remember, that's the one with the freeways where, where somebody's kidnapped, and yes. the kids get the idea, I guess Richie gets the idea, um, there are these signs, I don't know if every city has these these days, but there no, are signs no, over the freeways not. in Los Angeles every now and then uh, that were, were lit up in lights. You know, Long before the days of LED, you could spell out words and lights on these signs, and they were put there to tell you, like, there's a traffic jam ahead, you know, avoid the lane so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And they had just been recently installed when we were doing WizKids. And I thought, what if you could use one of those signs to alert someone uh, uh, to uh, uh, you know, avoid a murder or, or, or that someone was kidnapped? And so I wrote that into the this, into this script when it was totally fiction. There was no way you could possibly do such a thing with these signs. And um, the Universal Art Department built, or Prop Department built, a miniature of one of these freeway signs um, so that we could change the flashing lights. Is so that, that was probably done, probably done with, with uh, uh, CGI or the, whatever it was before CGI and not real. Um, and so we could change the message on the signs to whatever we wanted it to be. And that was a miniature that was used. Like 20 years later, they actually started doing it. And they actually, uh, these days, if there's a missing child, there'll be uh-huh. a message on these signs. Yeah, virtually every so, major city now has those, and that I mean, in, in in this era though, certainly that was I had never seen such a thing. Um, that, yeah. that was probably my first, yeah. I the first time I ever saw it was on the show. Right. So yeah, that was a lot of fun for me, 
and I, I enjoyed that, that now, episode. Now people routinely um, hack them and uh, tell us to watch out for zombies. <laughs> I bet. I'm sure. Um, now, early on, also, it, we had we had the, the Simon and Simon crossover with WizKids. Yeah, I don't remember that. I don't remember that story. Well, it was which uh, one is that? It, it aired the night after the uh, episode three, um, and it wasn't a continuation of a story or anything. But we did introduce Jameson Parker uh, as a character on uh, WizKids, and so uh, we had AJ Simon uh, appear on on WizKids and showed a little bit of interest w- with uh, Richie's mom. Um, they had a, oh yeah coming a, back. There was an encapsulated story, but the next night on Simon and Simon, the Whiz Kids helped uh, Rick and AJ on uh, their their episode "Fly the Alibi Skies." And I I know uh, that you're not credited for any of the writing on the, either of these episodes, but uh, I was just going to point that out that this was another example of uh, uh, a TV crossover where there's a, yeah. Your cross pollination of uh, of shows uh, where one show helps another, right? And who uh, who wrote the the Whiskey show with uh, that had the uh, Jameson Parker on? So it? That was James Crocker, right? And he he did so five was that episodes. Deadly Access. That was yes, Deadly Access. Right, I see. All right, okay, yeah, he was story editor on on Simon and Simon, uh, and then he left. Simon and Simon, he wanted to be a movie writer or something. And then when I left WizKids, he replaced me as producer in WizKids. Well, I know he um, worked on two revivals of The Twilight Zone, the 1985 as well as the 2002. So he, he Well, that was Phil. Uh, mm-hmm. Phil DeGuerre did the 1985 revival of uh, Twilight Zone. So, so he would have worked was with working the, with him again there. Yeah. And then in number seven... The Return of the Big Rocker, I feel like I wrote it, but it says that Paul Magistretti wrote it. So I did a major rewrite on, on it, I remember. And I also wrote three or four songs that were performed during it. And that was great fun for me. Um, it also got me into uh, into ASCAP, and I got royalties on those. And, and also I had some songs in other shows. And it's great to get these checks for... Two or three dollars sometimes uh, on the songs that were in these shows. Yeah, that, and then that made uh, made use of actual uh, actual uh, hit songs uh, from prior to that era. Um, I mean, there was, uh, of course, when the advertisement came on TV, it was all these songs we'd never heard of, which had to have been ones that you wrote and uh, yeah. and the actor performed or the singer performed. And one was was integral in the plot of them playing it back multiple times on the computer. Um, which one? And wasn't, wasn't one of them Great Balls of Fire? Oh, yeah. And the guy who played it was a, a former uh, evangelist who had, become an actor named Marjo. Marjo Gar- very interesting Gor- guy. Marjo Gortner, yes. Yeah. And he was in a lot of cult films that probably cross over with uh, a lot of our listeners. Uh, Pray for the Wildcats TV movie. And that's an infamous uh, uh, William Shatner and Andy Griffith uh, uh, TV movie. He was in Food of the Gods and a couple of uh, really B or C list uh, sci-fi films. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought he was very talented. He was a great, he played the piano and he sang. He did all those things in the show that that none of that is dubbed. It's all him. Yeah, you could tell it was it was being performed. Yeah, yeah, I really liked him too. And the next one I have here, uh, number eight. Uh, number eight is the wrong Mister Wright. And this this was a, there was a story behind this, getting this script done that was 
more scary than the sh- than than any TV show. Uh, we hired a guy, a writer named Arthur Weingarten, who had some very serious credits, and he was in the middle of trying to set up a series based on the French uh, Inspector McGray books, and he was um, setting this up in England, and he was flying back and forth between England and America when he got this assignment. Um, I guess he pitched the story. He turned in the story, and we put him in the script, and then he apparently never wrote the script. But he kept telling us, he kept telling us, well, I'm, you know, I got it almost done. I'll have it in two days, and then I'll have it in another day. I'll have it in three days. And then he started telling us, I, I sent it to the Xerox store. It's sitting at the Xerox store waiting for you. And he would tell us where the Xerox store was. That he, that he, and we, I would go to the Xerox store, and they wouldn't know what I was talking about. And I'd get him on the phone in England, and he'd say, no, no, it wasn't that Xerox store. It was the other Xerox store. And we spent at least a couple of weeks trying to track down the script that I'm convinced he never wrote. And finally, we gave up on that and hired another writer to write it. And I did a big, heavy rewrite on it. But that was one of the uh, the most frustrating experiences working with any of the outside writers. But I want to tell you the story about the next one, Red Star Rising. Yeah, yes, tell number us about nine. that one. That one's a really cool um, episode. I had... Uh, couple of friends who I sort of mentored for a week or two, and then they were established writers um, named Andy Gradat and Steve Kreinberg. I actually, I've been close to Andy all these years. I know Steve only through Andy. And um, they were young writers who had gotten, I think their, I believe their first job was on Archie Bunker's Place, uh, which was the spinoff of All, of All in the Family. And um, and which was uh, the producer of which was Joe Gannon, who became uh, I brought over as a producer on Whiskids uh, after I guess after Archie Bunker's place ended. Um, and I loved Andy and Steve's writing. I had read a couple of spec scripts of theirs, and I got and and they primarily were sitcom writers, but I got them this assignment, and uh, they brought in a story I absolutely loved uh, about Ham. Ham's family getting a new dog, and this dog would go berserk every night at the same time, like 2.33 a.m. or so. The dog would start howling and barking and would bust through a window or whatever it took to get out of the house and run away every night at the same time, and they didn't know why. And at the same time, we, we the audience, is learning that there is a man who lives down the street from from them uh, with a big satellite dish. This is when people had uh, occasionally a rich person would have a big giant satellite dish in their yard. And he was using his satellite dish to send secret information stolen from a high-tech lab um, that his uh, girlfriend worked at. And whenever he broadcast on the satellite dish in the middle of the night, it made all the dogs in the neighborhood go crazy. And this one dog in particular would, would, would run away every night. So I loved this story. And uh, they wrote a script, and it was a delightful script. Oh, and meanwhile, Richie had trouble, troubles with Ralph every time the satellite dish was broadcasting. And the, uh, so Ralph reacted to it as well as the dogs. Um, when the show was set up at CBS, and it was time to get serious about about prepping the scripts for to shoot. 
Um, I don't think it was CBS. I think it was Dick Lindheim, who was an exec at Universal on the show, uh, said, you know what? This script is too aimed at kids. We need to make it more adult-friendly, and I, the solution is to get rid of the dog. And so we were banned from having the dog in the story, and the dog was the center of the story. Uh, so Joe Gannon took over the script and wrote a new script that had the spies and the satellite dish and Ralph, but, but no dogs. And I've been angry ever since at <laughs> Dick Lindheim, always a lovely man. I also, also like him a lot. Um, always wanted to see this done right. And in this new series that I'm developing now that is uh, also uh, has kids at the center of it and is a mystery, I took the story that Andy and Steve wrote and uh, broke it down to, to look at the elements and wrote a new story based on it and a new script um, based on that that uh, I hope to get produced in this new series that I'm working on. Uh, and it's all about the dog. <laughs> it has nothing that, that Joe added. So I hope someday to to make that happen. This episode also had some crossover with, uh, or some cross promotion, I should say. Um, I noticed uh, it had there was a full size ET doll that uh, was featured in one scene, and uh, I noticed that because I I watched this a few months ago. Yes, I wondered about that myself. Been a, a I don't know why they did it. Year I don't and think a half that after Steven Spielberg needed the help. <laughs> After that episode, it looks like there's a lot of Jim Crocker, so that must mm -hmm. have been around when I left. And I noticed with, with this episode, uh, Red Star Rising, this was the first time the show do uh, dropped into the single-digit ratings, whereas uh, previously uh, we, we were getting you know 12.4 and 11.1, uh -huh. and, and it was not terrible. I mean, it was getting 23s and uh, 21 shares, uh, but uh, the audience on Wednesday night seemed to seem to stop tuning in. Yeah, well, I don't know what was up against it, um, or if, the, if that changed. I don't know. Um, it, it did have some good competition. Real People was, uh, was one of the shows that it was up against. Which yeah, was, that was, was an top interesting show. show. That may have been the first, the first unscripted, or what do you call that, the, you know, the first reality right, reality show. Reality or life, uh-huh. And, and then you uh, mentioned uh, something by Glenn Larson. Fall the Fall Guy. Guy. The Fall Guy was huge. Yeah, Fall Guy was a big show and a, and a really dumb show. So it must have really drawn, uh, you know, all of those those people who who otherwise might have uh, been watching with their kids, yeah. <laughs> with kids. Of course, this was Red Star Rising was the last Wednesday night show, and after that they moved it with the um, the new year uh, to Saturdays. Uh huh. And I don't know if yeah. And Saturday, any... Saturday had been a really good night of the week in the seventies. Uh, all in the family, Mary Tyler Moore uh, and Mash, mm -hmm. were all on Saturday night in the seventies, and it was the number one night of the night of the week. And the love despite boat. the fact, despite the fact that that so many people go out on Saturday night, uh, but now it's the worst night of the week for television. And uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps this. 1983, maybe this was the, the beginning of Saturday Night Falling into Disrepute. Yeah, but one of the problems they had with, with it on Saturday was it uh, it didn't really fit in any kind of uh, a, a programming block for CBS. Um, it, it was a 8 o'clock show or 7 o'clock Central here in, in the Central time zone. And yeah. then they would air a completely change of tone Saturday Night movie. Next, Body Heat. 
you know, right. or, or Sharky's right. Machine or something with with this adult. Uh, we've rerun, you know, a, a rerun a CBS uh, Saturday Night movie with a complete not at all the same audience. Right. Shit, let, now the grownups will be able to enjoy the movie. You know, and so it didn't. It didn't really feel uh, like that was a good home for it on on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as I as I said before, I didn't think there was any good home for it on CBS. But certainly, being followed by a grown up movie would is the worst possible combination. And it was up against T.J. Hooker um, and mm-hmm. uh, Different Strokes and Silver Spoons. On, yeah, and uh, Different Strokes and hits. Silver Spoons were big hits. Mm-hmm. T.J. Hooker was pretty big hit too. So, I mean, it sounds to me like CBS was giving up on it when they moved it to Saturdays. They didn't expect it to succeed. They just had all these shows. They were burning them off, it sounds like to me. So somewhere around this time, uh, you ended up leaving the show. Yes. I, I left. The show never ran very smoothly. And um, Phil was getting harder and harder to, to work with. And we were having problems with who was going to do what. And uh, Jack Laird, who was an old-time writer-producer who had done Night Gallery, um, <clears throat> was assigned by Universal to help us. We were getting behind schedule, so they gave him the script to write, and we couldn't use a word of the script he wrote, and then we had to rewrite it instantly. And things were getting kind of bad. And Phil, he was getting harder and harder to deal with. And one day he came in and he fired Jack Laird and Joe Gannon and demoted me. <laughs> and I said, no, you're not demoting me. I quit. And, and that was the end of his whole staff. And that's when he uh, got Jim Crack- Crocker to come in. And I guess in time, they got things somewhat under control. So I don't know if you have any kind of input then on the the episodes after you left. As uh, I think we were I talking, I that... didn't accept that I did a rewrite on one as as the show right. was ending its its run shooting. Uh, I had the minute after I quit, I had two things happened. Oh God, this was the timing was so terrible for me. Uh, in, in one sense, it was good. In one sense, it was bad. Um, before I quit. I got a call from an, a friend of mine who I had mentored when he first came to town named Frank Lupo. He uh, was a writer at Universal who got friendly with, with Steve Botch, uh, not Steve Botchko, Steve, uh, Steve of the Rockford Files show, Steve Cannell. And they happened to give him an office next to Steve Cannell when he moved on to the lot. And I got, I got him hired there because I loved the spec script he'd written, two of them actually. And he, he became friendly with Cannell and ended up leaving Universal with Cannell and becoming virtually his partner at Steve Cannell's company. And he, he was co-creator with Steve of uh, the A-Team and 14 other shows. So the bad thing that happened was I got a call from Frank Lupo uh, while I was still working on WizKids saying, um, we're starting a new show, and it's kind of like Simon and Simon, and we'd love you to run it. And I can't think of the name of it. You you probably know it. It's two guys on a boat who are detectives. Riptide. So would you be, we'll bring you over as showrunner. And... I said, Frank, I got my own show on the air. Was he crazy? I mean, that sounds kind of interesting if I want to do a ripoff of Simon and Simon, which I don't. 
but I got my own show here. So he said, okay, well, you were our first choice. And like two days later, I quit WizKids. And within another day or so, I called Frank Lupo and I said, I'm available, Frank. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, we just hired Barb, Barb something, an actual woman. And there weren't too many in those days. Uh, writing and producing, and uh, they hired her, and she ran the show for all the whole time it was on. She apparently did a very good job. Uh, but also, I got uh, a shot at, do, at writing a pilot the next week, and I went off and wrote a pilot for Fox while I still had my office at Universal. And when I finished that, um, John Stevens, who was the line producer on WizKids, uh, called me up and asked if I would do a page one rewrite on those one of the last two episodes because they were in trouble and I did that, but I don't remember which one it was. Yeah. It was the very, and, very um, last episode, 18. May I take your order, please? No, that wasn't it. That actually it was an early episode that maybe didn't get played on, on the network until June two, but it was, sh- it was one of the early ones shot. I'm sure yeah, it was definitely shot earlier in the season, but I don't know why they held it. And it was the final one that was aired. Yeah, I have a feeling it may have been uh, preempted by a a football game or a presidential speech or something. Um, But I do remember, I do remember writing of it, and and I did a big rewrite on it, and uh, that Alice was adorable in her in her uh, uniform at the at the fast food place. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, definitely, definitely uh, was an early show, even though it wasn't aired when it should have been. But it's one of the other late ones, either Father's Day or Al, uh, Altera. I don't even know how you say that one. Altera. Altera. Uh-huh. Um, I did a big rewrite on it. And then Craig Buck came in, who I didn't know, and he didn't know me. And he did a, I guess he did a rewrite or he did the original script on Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we never met until about 30 years later. Yeah, about 30 years later, we're now in the same writer's group together. And he's a, a really fun guy. Yeah, IMDb says that you're uncredited for rewrite on Altera. Ah, uh-huh. that's funny because I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. That was the one where we have uh, Richie given a love interest, finally. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to have been part of that. Yeah, I remember it vaguely. I just, 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 just very vaguely. Well, I'm sure that, uh, you know, 35 plus years has a little bit to do with it, too. Um Oh yeah, just of one of many things that you've worked on. Um, what about any? Uh, d- were there any unproduced scripts that you had a hand in writing that that weren't made? No, but there was one script that it was shot, and I'm trying to figure out which one it was. This will give you an idea of of the pending developing craziness of Phil. It may have been the wrong Mister Wright. I'm not sure, but one of the early scripts. This is, a, this is kind of a sad, unfortunate story. I, you know, I really enjoyed mentoring new young writers. <clears throat> and one who uh, was a friend of mine who just couldn't quite get a break with her first writing assignment was named Lisa Seidman. And she became a rather, rather big writer in television for years. Um, and after working on, on nighttime soaps in America for years, she went and created a couple of nighttime soaps in Russia. Um, so she had quite a career. But at this point, I don't think she had had 
uh, one sale yet. And she was working as a writer's assistant on McCagney and Lacey. And um, she pitched a story for WizKids uh, very early on. And Phil went away on vacation while she wrote the story. She turned in the story. I thought she did a very good job on it. And I said to her, all right, I can't give you an official go-ahead to script because only Phil can do that, and he's out of the country. But it's fine with me if you want to go ahead and start writing unofficially, and uh, when he gets back, we'll, we'll make it official. Well, she apparently didn't understand what I was saying. What I was saying was, don't tell Universal until we make it official. And instead, she went and told her agent that she just got picked up the script at WizKids. So the agent called Universal, and the Universal Business Affairs said, we don't know about that. And uh, they called me, and I tried to explain to them, but you know they don't want to know things like that. So they, they said, well, I guess we better put her into script. So they officially put her into script without Phil's approval. And when he came back, he went through the roof, because the script had been ordered without his approval. I explained to him that it was an accident and it was a young writer, didn't understand what I said, and he, he was just mad. He was so mad, he refused. She turned in his script and it was just fine. And he refused to read it. And he hired someone else, and I think it was Phil Combest, to write the script that he already had a script for. And Phil or whoever it was used her story that we gave we gave him the story, and he wrote another script that was just fine. So we had completely wasted the money on the first script, and Lisa had to wait till she finally got another first script order in her life. Yes, that would have been one of her. Or, I mean, that was before she had any credits. Her, right. her first credit uh, that I'm seeing is Cagney and Lacey. And of course, she went on um, to make to do big things on Dallas and Falcon Crest and and big time on uh, Young and the Restless and Days of Our Lives. So she right. she's uh, worked quite a bit in the in the industry. Right. Yeah. 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 She had a big career. That's great. So as far as uh, the legacy of WizKids, I mean, do you do you have any idea of what direction you think the show might have gone had it gotten a second season? I know that you weren't uh, involved at that point. But let's say that you were still on the show and uh, and writing and producing. What what would you have done in a second season of WizKids? Well, if it had been on NBC or ABC Sunday at 7, I would have probably pushed to make it more lighter and comedic because that, that's always the way I tend to write. Um and and that's what I'm doing with the, uh, the slightly similar show that I'm developing now. It's like Whiz Kids, but lighter and funnier, and uh, and and so far with no murders. <laughs> and um, so probably that would have been my my uh, intention. You know, the dog story would be the is the perfect example of that. That they they wouldn't even let us shoot, um, but. In in actual fact, what happened is just the opposite. That the same thing that happened with the Hardy Boys. That each week, when the ratings weren't high enough, the network or the studios complaining the the ratings aren't high enough. We got to get more adults to watch. How do you get more adults to watch? More murders, more gunfights, more more car chases, uh, harder edge stories. Everything that I think is wrong for Whiz Kids and for Hardy Boys. Um, that would have been hard to do as well in that time slot, that early in the evening. 
um, to introduce. I mean, yeah, that's right, tonally right, right, tonally right. off for for the, the time. Yeah, slot but I'm that saying I'm saying that's that's what happened instead when right. it wasn't in that time slot, when it was in a later time slot, competing with other shows that had adult leads in mm-hmm. them and and were harder edged action adventures, or what we then called action adventures. Today, I don't know what you call them. They don't have the action that action adventures today do. You know? um, so I'm just saying, I'm just saying, it would have been lighter in the Sunday seven o'clock slot, and and it would have gotten hard, and did get harder and harder over the season in the eight o'clock slot. And if they'd introduced the whole element of spying that you probably don't even know about, and I don't quite understand, um, there was some somebody was a spy that that was doing some secret work for the government that. The plot's got more and more convoluted. From what I'm looking at, as far as all of the historical and contextual news that was going on at the time, I doubt that the following year, CBS or probably any other network would have given WizKids a green light. What do you think? With all of the well, uh, all of the hacker uh, hysteria, we always wondered, we always wondered why they greenlit it. It never made sense to me that they greenlit it, and I think it was mostly to keep it away from the other networks because I think they were afraid it would actually succeed Sunday at 7. But, you know, who knows? So do you think a show like WizKids, as as was the 1983 version, could that be done again today? I don't know. I don't have any really answer for that. You know, if you wanted to, yeah, I, I understand you're, you're focusing on the technological aspect of it, and I never really focused on that. That, that was just there as far as I was concerned. You know, that was Phil's baby. It was sort of like Star Trek. I mean, the stories should be about people and not the warp speed and the phasers and things like that. Yeah, sure. That's what they always told the writers. You have to write the characters. What would the character do in this situation? Right. Um, You know, that reminds me, I don't think we ever really spent the time and energy we should have in defining our characters. You know, I can't tell you anything. uh, You know, Richie, we know is crazy about the computer and is and is brilliant uh but i don't know anything about him other than that and i don't know anything about the other three characters except their ages and, i think we're we're, uh, and we're we should sort of have, introduced we should to their... have known a lot more about them right we, i think we're introduced to them more in the uh, opening sequence than in yeah. any other way where right. i mean a lo- quite a bit is is portrayed or or related in that opening sequence where you see that uh, uh andrea's uh, the artistic side with yeah. the ballet and the uh, uh playing the instrument and uh we have uh goodness richie's uh, doing magic richie's doing magic which i don't think uh, did we even even see that in the show that was just something that was shot no, not and, that i know of. um you're absolutely right we should have taken those four points from the title sequence and built them into at least certain episodes of the series. And I don't think it ever occurred to anyone to do that. And the interviews with Phil said that the show would, uh, if it was a, a hit and had continued, it would have followed the kids into college. And uh, you, you could have seen them grow up into, into those roles. Yeah, well, that would have been great. Once they were old enough, we wouldn't have had been bound by those work rules. It would have been great for us. But the show we got was something that uh, many of us still remember, uh, even though it was only on for one season. We got 18 mm-hmm. episodes. Uh, it is something that uh, those people of a certain age uh, do recall watching on, on Wednesday or Saturday and enjoying that, uh, that one hour 
where you could fantasize and that uh, you were going to solve a mystery with your home microcomputer. And I, I think right. that the, the show probably served as, a, as an ad for, uh, for home microcomputers. This, was, this would have been at a time when people were just off, you know, putting those on their Christmas list. I, I want a Commodore 64. I want a TRS-80. Um, and uh, having a show like that on television, uh, those companies that were providing some of the equipment had to be salivating over the idea, well, this is just a, a one-hour commercial for some of our products. Yeah, sure. I noticed there were a whole lot of, of company credits at the end of the technology companies, although I, I don't think any of them is in business anymore, uh, but it certainly was good for them. Uh, and it, it would be, have been good for kids, too, who, who were interested in this sort of thing. Um, well, Mr. Shane, thank you very much for being with us today on Forgotten TV and, and giving us all of that uh, behind-the-scenes information that uh, you're not going to find anywhere else. I really, really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The Teleelectronics would like to... Eastern Television. How come all you ever talk about are sports games? Sorry? And television now has games like the arcade. I know. Walk and chase. Absolutely. Tron Deadly Dead. Excellent. Right. Night Stalker. Awesome robot. Oh, glad you like them. Sorry. I can't hang around here. I'm going home to play my Intellivision. Who was that kid? Somebody out there? E.T. Video Game? It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T. Running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on Earth. A friend. E.T. Only from Atari. After WizKids. Matthew Laberto, following WizKids, starred in the 1986 Wes Craven movie Deadly Friend and made several guest appearances on shows like Highway to Heaven, Amazing Stories, Hotel, and Night Court before transitioning to voice acting. Since 1995, he's voiced characters for Dot Hack, Yu Gi Oh! and G.I. Joe series, as well as several Star Wars video games. His extremely rare on-camera appearances since include a 2014 40th anniversary Little House reunion on the Today Show and in interviews on the extras of the Blu-ray release from that year. Todd Porter was briefly promoted as a teen pinup in Tiger Beat and similar magazines after WizKids. But except for a single appearance on Caden Alley, he never acted again. He returned to his home state of New Jersey and to a private life out of the public eye, becoming a first responder and following in his father's footsteps and joining the police force for a 20-year career. His story will be heard on the next podcast installment. Jeffrey Jacquet only made one more appearance on an episode of Our House with Wilford Brimley. Following this, he left the entertainment industry and studied law at UCLA. Now going by Jeff, he has been an attorney in Southern California for nearly 
30 years. Andrea Elson, after WizKids, had a one-off guest appearance on Silver Spoons, then was cast as Lynn Tanner on NBC's hit show, ALF, for four seasons, from which she was finally recognized by the Youth and Film Awards with two nominations. Following ALF fame, she continued to make spotty guest appearances on shows like Parker Lewis Can't Lose, Mad About You, and Step by Step. Like most of her WizKids co-stars, she too left the industry and later traveled the world as a yoga instructor. Now with her own yoga studio, she enjoys life with her family and dog Dyson, and her story will also be heard on the next podcast. Max Gale after WizKids was in a number of one-off TV guest appearances until 1990 when he was cast as a series regular in the short-lived CBS sitcom Normal Life, along with Dweezil and Moon Unit Zappa. More recently, I've spotted him on CBS's Scorpion, and he currently appears on ABC's General Hospital. Now 76, he was just seen at the Santa Fe Native Cinema Film Festival, where he honored the late actor Will Sampson with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Madeline Kane made just a couple more acting appearances on Simon and Simon and Small Wonder before changing gears and entering academia and teaching at USC for 15 years, as well as becoming a published author. Now retired, she is still keeping busy writing her fourth book, and tune in to the next podcast to hear from Madeline. A. Martinez, immediately following WizKids, was cast in the new NBC daytime drama, Santa Barbara, where the role wasn't too much of a stretch from WizKids. He portrayed Cruz Castillo, detective with the Santa Barbara PD, for eight years. Since then, he's been a regular or recurring character on L.A. Law, Profiler, General Hospital, One Life to Live, Days of Our Lives, The Western, Longmire. At age 71, he's still a very busy man. Young Melanie Gaffin continued to act for a while, voicing characters on the series Foofer and showing up on Growing Pains, Out of This World, and The Wonder Years, before leaving acting and re-entering private life, where today she keeps busy with her own family. Bob Shane, after leaving WizKids, worked on the tragically short-lived Cover Up as a writer-producer. He penned episodes of Remington Steel, Spencer for Hire, Murder, She Wrote, and finally got his well-received return of Sherlock Holmes TV movie made, producing it himself for CBS in 1987. Although it did not get picked up as a series, it led to two additional UK-produced Sherlock Holmes TV movies in the very early 90s, featuring Christopher Lee. He also co-created the short-lived PSI Love You for CBS with Greg Evigan and Connie Selica. At 78, he's still busy working on his current project you heard about in the interview, and we hope to see it soon on our screens. Phil DeGuerre, following WizKids, continued to be busy in the industry for the next 20 years. In early 1985, he served as a creative consultant on the forgotten TV favorite, Otherworld working with creator Roderick Taylor. His next project was reviving The Twilight Zone for CBS in 1985, being showrunner for the first two seasons and writing three of the episodes. 
The 85 Twilight Zone is an underrated interpretation of the classic series, well worth revisiting. I well recall being hooked on those Friday night episodes, and the production of this series has its own story, some of which is told in episode commentaries by Phil himself on the DVD release. When you do an open-ended show like this, where there is no studio and there is no star and there is no formula, then an awful lot of writers suddenly appear who can write you terrific scripts. Phil brought on board writer Harlan Ellison and director Wes Craven, as well as WizKids alum James Crocker to work on the show. Stories by Stephen King, Theodore Sturgeon, Arthur C. Clarke, and Ray Bradbury were adapted. Phil, a huge Grateful Dead fan, was able to get the band to provide their interpretation of Marius Constant's original theme, familiar to any classic TV fan. The images seen in the opening were designed by Gary Gutierrez, a longtime collaborator with The Dead, providing animated sequences for their films and videos. Appropriately, the new opening sequence was projected in front of The Dead as they performed the theme during a recording session in the middle of the night. Phil also enlisted the engineers at the Computer Music Studio at Northwestern University in Illinois to add their unique psychoacoustical effect called the Spatial Reverberator, as well as their phase vocoder to the unique music and sound effects on the show. The show was also produced in stereo before CBS had even adopted stereo broadcasts, and well before the average viewer had equipment to appreciate it. During production, Phil offered his friend, George, a job as a writer on the show. George, a fellow deadhead, was at a low point in his writing career, where he was considering becoming a real estate agent, but still didn't jump at the offer, even though a TV writing job offered better pay than he had been making writing his fantasy literature novels. When Phil threw in backstage passes to all the Grateful Dead shows George and his girlfriend would care to see, he took the job and moved from his Santa Fe home to L.A. This led to a new career in Hollywood for George, also working on Max Headroom and Beauty and the Beast. You've likely heard of George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, series of books he started publishing in the 90s, which became a worldwide phenomenon after being produced as the HBO series Game of Thrones. After leaving the Twilight Zone, Peter Wagg, producer of the original Max Headroom show, asked Phil to head an American adaptation of the short UK Max Headroom TV pilot for ABC. This led to him being executive producer of the very short first season of Max Headroom on ABC in 1987. Again, bringing on familiar names, James Crocker and Joe Gannon to work on episodes. Phil then created the syndicated series Air America in 1998, starring Lorenzo Lamas. He later worked as a writer and producer on the first season of NCIS, as well as the final three seasons of JAG. Then, on January 24, 2005, he died at his San Francisco home of lung cancer-related causes at the far too young age of 60. As Linda Scruggs told me, one of Phil's philosophies was that he was very conscious of the influence of television, and he always wanted to instill a positive message and leave viewers feeling better than before. From his early work on Baba Black Sheep and Doctor Strange to The Twilight Zone and beyond, 
Phil Daguerre left us a legacy of entertainment, nearly all of which can be enjoyed at our convenience today, with one exception. Where is WizKids? Before the original network run had ended, WizKids started being aired overseas in the UK, on ITV and other stations, as well as New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Uruguay, France, and Mexico, among possibly other countries. In the U.S., there were some very limited syndicated reruns for a couple of years. Most of the YouTube recordings are from San Francisco's KICU Channel 36, who ran it the summers of 1986 and 87. Then, domestic reruns fizzled out, and the show faded into our memories. Even the Sci-Fi Channel never re-ran WizKids. The series has never received a home video release domestically. It is now owned by NBC Universal, parent company of Universal Television, which has seemed uninterested in releasing a great deal of content in its library. It is true that their one-season shows like Tales of the Gold Monkey and Street Hawk have been given DVD releases, but it was an outside DVD studio that licensed these shows for release. It was not NBC Universal that released them. Boutique DVD studios such as Shout Factory, Mill Creek Entertainment, and Kino Lorber have no current plans to acquire WizKids for distribution. For some years now, fans online have even asked the question as to whether original film elements or even video master tapes still exist for the show. As discussed in the episode on Aftermash, effort needs to be taken to store and preserve 35mm film prints. And video master tapes as well need correct labeling, categorization, and proper storage. This takes time and effort that not all TV shows or even film releases have received, and far too many have been left forgotten in studio space storage, deteriorating over time. Incredibly, cataloging in some studio storage centers still consists of index cards and three-ring binders. When they are retrieved, it sometimes takes expensive restorations of the film to prepare these for a new master to be used for digital release for either disc or streaming. If only videotape masters were stored, these will be subpar in quality compared to the video resolution we are used to seeing on modern DVD releases. However, even when the correct storage and preservation is done, disaster can strike. A massive fire has broken out at Universal Studios in California. So far, there are no reports of injuries. The fire is dumping thick black smoke into the air on a back lot filled with movie sets. We have a third alarm fire in the back lot area. One of the buildings destroyed was what they called the video vault, where videotapes of films and TV shows were stored. Some 40 to 50,000 videotapes were destroyed in the fire by Universal's own estimate at the time, some of which may have existed only on videotape, but also notably a significant number of videotape masters for filmed TV shows in their catalog, including TV shows they were in the process of converting to digital videotape storage, which were kept in the same video vault, and which were also destroyed. Universal stored the original film elements of many of their shows elsewhere in more secure concrete-lined vaults, and some of these TV shows have been since remastered from that film. But even so, if a vintage TV show was edited on videotape, this can involve recreating episodes from film elements. 
A June 2019 expose by the New York Times revealed far more was lost than Universal has ever admitted to, including irreplaceable music master recordings for artists like Elton John, The Eagles, and Bill Haley and the Comets just to name a few. The massive fire that swept across the back lot of Universal Studios in June 2008 torched a number of famous attractions, but perhaps the most costly destruction was that of a vault containing up to half a million original master recordings. Bill Haley and his comments. Elton John. You can check out anytime you like. But you can never leave. The Eagles, just to name a few. A half century of music history. Universal said at the time nothing was lost that couldn't be recovered. Fortunately, nothing irreplaceable uh, uh, was lost. We have uh, duplicates and uh, obviously there's a lot of work to, to replicate what's been lost, but it can be done. Some 30 years after WizKid stopped being seen in domestic reruns, there was a 2016 French DVD release by Elephant Films. France seems to have an affinity for vintage American television, and there are a number of TV series released there that have never gotten a U.S. release. However, this set omits five of the episodes. Why? Well, it turns out these five episodes never aired in France. In 1984, only 13 episodes of the series ran on Antenna 2 television, then was re-aired in 1995 on France 3. The details on why only 13 episodes were distributed in France are likely lost to time. There is speculation that episode 10, The Network, was not picked up due to its possibly controversial Cold War theme, and 13 episodes was considered a half-season at the time. But whatever the reason... Only 13 aired and were translated into French. This is why when Elephant Films went to license WizKids for DVD release, only 13 of the episodes were included, as there are no French versions of the unaired episodes. Ten of these episodes were obtained from Universal as Apple ProRes digital files made from their videotape masters, complete with original English audio and network teasers you heard in the last podcast. But three are captured from 30-year-old 16mm film prints and are in French only. These are complete with lines, film scratches, and cue marks before commercial breaks. When contacting Elephant Films, they stated the five missing episodes, and by logical extension, the three they only could find French 16mm prints of, were considered lost by Universal. The circumstances as to how these became lost was not shared. Whether these were destroyed in the 2008 fire, a victim of cataloging errors, or damaged via other means over three decades, is not clear. They did not respond to requests for further clarification. If it is true that three to eight master videotapes of episodes are lost, it is still possible Universal has original films of WizKids episodes stored away they could make new video masters from although this involves far more effort and expense to do so. As frequently, the film elements require special handling to survive a new telecine scan, then digital restoration to remove film scratches, damage, dirty audio, and so on. When this is done correctly, it is possible to produce high-definition versions of old TV series that were shot on 35mm film, such as been done with Star Trek, 
Wonder Woman, and Man from Atlantis. Although it involves the expense of ordering it from overseas, and even though incomplete, if you have a multi-region DVD player or can play them on your computer, the French DVD release is the best way to watch the show, due to the better audio and video quality over the home video recordings floating around online. The DVD also provides the original network episode teasers that would air immediately before the show started, which have not been seen domestically in 36 years. It also includes a superficially researched 15-minute hosted documentary on the show. As far as the missing episodes, the home recordings are currently all we have. At time of recording, WizKids remains the only television series Phil Daguerre produced that is unreleased on DVD in the United States. During production of this podcast, NBC Universal announced the Peacock streaming service. It is possible that in an effort to beef up the Peacock catalog, content never before released will be dug out of the NBC and Universal vaults and made available to watch. Barring one of the boutique DVD studios licensing the show for a release, this is likely the best chance of ever legitimately seeing it in the United States. If you're interested in getting it released in any way, letting Peacock, Universal Television, and Universal Studios Entertainment know on social media will make them aware of public interest in the show. Time will tell. It's incredible that somehow CBS greenlit a show prior to the summer of 1983, which would end up perfectly coinciding with the computer-hacking subculture zeitgeist at the time that would be fueled into the mainstream by the hit film War Games. That the activities of the 414s would become known by the public six weeks prior to the WizKids premiere. That 414 member Neil Patrick would testify before Congress and make national news nine days before the premiere. That a week after the pilot aired, the inner circle raids and press conference would take place. The real-life WizKids activities had consequences, leading to bills being introduced in Congress the following year meaning many of the activities depicted on WizKids would become felonies. As a result, it's unlikely CBS or any other network would have touched a series featuring computer-hacking WizKids the following season, or any season, within the next several years. I've found that for such a short-lived, now fairly obscure show, a lot of people my age tend to remember it. In fact, the impact of WizKids is likely more than most people realize. During research of this podcast, I came across numerous comments from people that said the show instigated an interest in computers and technology, and many of these now work in related fields. The people from the Vintage Computer Federation were extremely quick to put together a list of notes for me, leading me to believe there were some WizKids fans over there. And somebody over at HBO's Eastbound and Down must have liked the show, as it was repeatedly seen on Mexican broadcast television in its second season. Would I recommend WizKids to new, uninitiated younger viewers? I hate to say it, but probably not. The only readily available way to watch it, here in the U.S. anyway, is copies of videotaped home recordings on various YouTube channels that have relatively poor video and audio quality. Currently, the pilot episode is impossible to find outside the French DVD. But if you want to delve into the show, I have set up a YouTube playlist with the intended episode order as best I can figure it. 
The show may also appear incredibly dated to new viewers. Firmly set at the dawn of the mid-80s, due to its prominently depicting the technology of the time and integrating it into the story. This is likely one reason for the very limited domestic reruns the show received. The San Jacinto Mall was torn down last year. The large desktop computers we once had have shrunken into compact laptops, smartphones, and tablets, and compact discs are virtually a relic of the past, but our memories endure. For those of us who fondly remember WizKids, it can serve as a time capsule of that brief moment in time when we were all a little more innocent, when home microcomputers were new, and we were still learning, writing computer code, dialing up our BBSs, playing computer games, perhaps occasionally getting into a little mischief, living out our electronic dreams of being David Lightman or Richie Adler. After all, wouldn't you like to be a 14-year-old whiz kid again? Next time on Forgotten TV. Did you think that was all there was to say about WizKids? Not a chance. In the final WizKids installment, hear from stars Madeline Kane, Andrea Elson, Todd Porter, Adrian Daguerre, and whoever else may join the fun. What was it like working on WizKids? How did they get the roles? Why did they leave acting? What have they been up to since? The WizKids stars speak on the next Forgotten TV. To get even more Forgotten TV, become a patron on Patreon and gain access to the Forgotten TV supplemental podcast feed. Additional podcasts that go beyond the material presented in the show. Full-length interviews before show release. Plus sneak previews of podcasts before they are openly posted. And additional goodies as they come along. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support Forgotten TV and hear these additional podcasts. The link to join us over on Patreon is here in the show notes. Your funds make a difference and help me pay for accounts and services needed to pay for hosting, license music, buy DVDs, and conduct research. All the ways you can support Forgotten TV are here in the show notes. Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko, with producers Eric Fusco, Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, and Ron. Also, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, Universal Television, Elephant Films, NBC Universal, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show, film, or streaming service mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented.
However, forgotten TV media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. I've had such a great time reliving WizKids and talking with cast and crew. For the last four months, I've poured my heart into this project, and I would first like to give Bob Shane and Phil DeGuerre my profound thanks for giving us the show in the first place, and for Bob's invaluable help in producing these podcasts. And special thanks to Madeline Kane, Andrea Elson, Todd Porter, Max Gale, Linda Scruggs DeGuerre, Adrian DeGuerre, Tammy Taylor, Robbie Rist, Paul Chihara, Craig Buck, and Wayne Correa with additional research by Ian Dickerson, Jordan Rumsey, Jean-Francois Horvath, Sebastian Bark, Jeffrey Brace in the Vintage Computer Federation, Matt Novak at Gizmodo, and Wayne Correa. I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some audio possible. The Chronic Rift, Music Videos and Other Random Stuff, Mr. Ataz, Annie Chen, 11DB11, The Spirit of Orchestral Music, W.A. Mozart, Fred Fred Vid, Old Classic Retro Gaming, Mr. Horror Lover 91, Matthew Laberto Fan, Dutch Daisy, Spee 672, Europe and the United States, Game of Thrones, Stephen Brandt, Associated Press, My Saturday Mornings, FM 1156, Maurizio Benavage, W.R.E.Y. Tube, Beta Max, Locke 2007, Vinchus 97, and the channels that have WizKids episodes The Red City, Orion 1052003, Retro TV, Magic Ace 4. Sources of quotes and background information were obtained from vintage issues of the following magazines Variety, Starlog, Popular Mechanics, Enter, Newsweek, Compute, InfoWorld. Video Games, PC Magazine, Computer World, Frack, Wired, Creative Computing, as well as numerous archived newspaper articles from newspapers.com, as well as the documentary film The 414s, The Original Teenage Hackers, and the books Out of the Inner Circle by Bill Landreth, Dream Songs Volume 2 by George R.R. R. Martin, also Gizmodo's Paleo Future Blog, the Movie Music International blog on cinema and television, Naked Security by Sophos, the Alt Sci-Fi blog, the BBC Archive, the La Petite Genie's blog, CNN, RedCedar.com, CNBC's Make It, File770.com, SFGate, ThePeopleHistory.com, The Verge, South Florida Sun Sentinel, and KCAL CBS Los Angeles. The music tracks Catch Up by Falcon Dives and I Think I Was There by Emil Axelson are used under license from Epidemic Sound. Be sure to like Forgotten TV on Facebook and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Visit Forgotten.tv for all content and links. This podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.